Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. we got a treat for you today. I'm excited about it. Uh, Jacob is currently in West Virginia doing a little bit of turkey hunting. He's filming it. He's recording some podcasts, so that you're going to get to hear and see all that pretty soon. If you listen to the Friday episodes you heard on last Friday's episode that Tiffany and I welcomed our, our beautiful baby girl into the world on April 4th, so first-time parents, we're really enjoying this we're it's, it's been an incredible couple weeks guys it's been it's been amazing so um needless to say though we got a lot going on with all that so i figured it'd be a pretty good time to do a throwback episode so we do probably two throwback episodes every year and it's pretty self-explanatory but you know in the 400 some odd episodes we have out right now uh, obviously some get lost in the shuffle 
And there's some absolutely exceptional episodes from the last couple of years that got a lot of downloads at the time, but like we've grown a lot since then. And, there, and there's a lot of people who have not heard this episode. And so we like to go and, and kind of cherry pick those episodes, the best of the best, and repost them every once in a while uh, so everyone can get a chance to hear them. Today, that would be episode 135 with Adam Jolly. Some of you may recall Adam Jolly from uh, early last summer, episodes 378 and 379, where we had him on with his brother Heath Jolly, and we talked all about early season mature bucks in the South, so bow hunting in, in uh, September and October. Uh, which is early season for most of the South. And that ended up just being a phenomenal uh, series, those two episodes. So definitely go check that out if you're interested in early season bow hunting. It's a huge resource, and we got a, a lot of people writing in with success stories from that series. But this episode, 135, this is from 2019, and this one was the first time we actually interviewed Adam Jolly. And uh, we really drilled down on a specific buck that he shot, a really, really, really big buck that he shot on public land with a bow in the South. And uh, we kind of go over the details of how that buck uh, was eluding people, where that buck was bedding, how it was watching parking lots, stuff like that. Uh, really, really interesting episode, a really heavy tactic episode that I think is really going to get y'all's wheels turning and it's really going to get you guys excited for fall. So I'm pumped to be putting this one back out there. This is, I would consider this a, a quote unquote Southern Outdoorsman classic episode. So I think y'all are going to love it. Let us know what you think of this episode, uh, shoot us an email via our website, message us on Facebook or Instagram at the Southern Outdoorsman, or just find uh, Andrew Maxwell, which is myself, or Jacob Myers on uh, Facebook or Instagram, and you're going to be able to go and uh, message us there as well. And just let us know what you think of it. I would especially love, I'm, I'm putting the call out, I would love if there's a longtime listener who heard this episode in 2019 and implemented these tactics. I would love to hear kind of the impact this episode had on you back then and how it's kind of panned out over the years. I would love to hear that. So if there's anybody out there who fits that criteria, message us, please. That would be awesome. That, that might make a good podcast segment. So also, we are going to start reading reviews again when we go back to outros. So right now we're doing deer episodes on Mondays, turkey episodes on Fridays. Typically we do our outros on, on Fridays, but since it's turkey season, we're doing full-length turkey episodes on Fridays. In early May, when Alabama season goes out, we're going to switch back to outros and we're going to start reading reviews. I see a bunch of new reviews on there that we are going to read. I see you on there, Thicket Cricket. I see you. <laughs> and... Uh, we're going to read those, and we're almost over a 1,000 reviews. So y'all help us get over that hump on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts already, please go do that. Uh, it would help us get over a 1,000, and we'd be extremely appreciative of that. It would be huge for us. Lastly, last thing, I'm going to let y'all in on a little something here, all right? We will be at the Mobile Hunters Expo in Chattanooga, Tennessee on June 24th, so the weekend of June 24th. Uh, we're super excited about that expo. Uh, tickets are on sale now, but, but we can get you a discount. So don't pay full price for your tickets, okay? Use the promo code SOUTHERN and you're going to get a discount on those tickets, all right? So use the promo code SOUTHERN. You're going to get a discount. You're going to save yourself some money and you're going to help the show. So there's no reason to not do it. You're going to help the show and you're going to save money. That show is going to be really fun. Uh, they've actually got a, a just unbelievable lineup of seminar speakers at that show. 
uh, I, I firmly believe some of the best deer hunters in the country are going to be walking around at that show. Uh, they got a, a really great seminar series lined up. Uh, two of the guys delivering seminars are past podcast guests. Well, actually, three of them, but the two I'll mention right now are Michael Perry and Jonathan Moreland. Okay, so those two guys are going to be delivering seminars at the Mobile Hunters Expo. So you're going to get to go hear them talk and then go talk to them afterwards. Go shake their hand, kind of get to know them. Uh, maybe ask them for advice, um, you know, kind of pick their brains. You're going to get to go and actually network with those guys that you hear on the podcast. So that's going to be, I think, a tremendous resource for any listener out there who's like wanting to dive deeper on this stuff and, and ask those guys some questions. You need to be there to go ask those guys questions and shake their hand and just hang out with them. It's going to be it's going to be not only fun, but that kind of interaction with those guys is going to help you with whatever you're trying to accomplish this fall. They share a lot of incredible information on this podcast, but there's nothing like getting to talk to them yourself and and ask them your own questions. So you need to be there and do that. Then, of course, also, it's kind of like a one-stop shop for all the mobile hunting companies. So it's not like a normal hunting expo where you've got like some dude selling a high fence hunt, and then here's this guy selling an African safari, and then, oh, here's this guy selling uh, like rain, like gutter covers, and oh, here's this guy in the corner selling these like weird, cheap Pakistani knives, (laughs) and then here's this other guy selling like shoe insoles. It's not like that. Uh, It's 100% mobile hunting companies. So saddle companies, lightweight tree stand companies, e-bike companies, technical hunting apparel companies, they're all going to be there. You're going to get to put your hands on the gear and actually try it before you make a purchase. And the good thing is it's kind of early summer. So that gives you a lot of time where even if you don't make a purchase at the show, you can actually go and compare, like say you're looking at saddles, you can go to like five different saddle companies and sit in their saddles at the show, talk to them mess with the product and, and kind of get a feel for all of them and then make a purchase decision later. So that's going to be huge and it's going to save you a lot of time and headache, you know, trying to figure out what, you know, product you want to get for this upcoming fall. So you pair that with all the really good deer hunters are going to be walking around. It's going to be an absolutely incredible event. We're really excited about it. We can't wait for it to happen and we can't wait to meet you guys there. Uh, you know, while we're there, y'all come up to us, y'all talk to us, y'all tell us your stories. We want to hear your stories. Okay. We want to shake your hand and hear about what you got going on. So make sure you seek out me and Jacob, find us there, shake your hand, talk to us. We want to hear from you. It's really excited to meet you guys there. Like I said, use that promo, use the promo code Southern, and you're going to get a nice discount on your tickets to get to the Mobile Hunters Expo. We'll go ahead and throw a link to it in the description of this podcast. So you can go down there and, uh, and check everything out. So, all right, guys, without further ado, let's get on to episode 135 with Adam Jolly. Welcome back to another beautiful Monday of deer season, everybody. I'm Andrew Maxwell, Southern Outdoors and Podcast here with another episode about outsparting and killing big old bucks. And today we got a heck of a guest, another heavy hitter for you, Mr. Adam Jolly. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing good, fellas. Hope you guys are. I'm doing pretty good. Had a good weekend. Killed a doe. Uh, Jacob, how are you? uh doing doing great i'm fired up for this episode uh adam just i just want to recap this real quick man i called you i don't know when that was maybe two weeks ago three weeks ago yeah something like that kind of just chatted man and i i I told andrew and i told you you know after we got off the phone i called andrew and i was never so fired up about getting somebody on the podcast after speaking with you man so i'm excited we're finally after a few weeks delays and uh just you know you know, messed up schedules. Finally, we're able to kind of get together on this. So Dude, I'm, I'm pumped. Jacob called me. 
He was out of breath. He was talking so fast, and he was so excited that he was like out of breath. He's like, dude, I might throw up. <laughs> this, is why, this is why we have a podcast, because Jacob gets so excited about talking about how to kill deer that he like drives himself to puke sometimes. <laughs> and that that's what excites me about being on the podcast the most, is I don't have a whole lot of people to talk tactics to, so... Hey, it was man. fantastic talking with you the other week. Hey, I'm I'm right there with you on that. I remember that's part of the reason we started the dang podcast is because, like, with, just with me and my level of obsession with all this stuff, I don't have a lot of friends who will like sit down and like really like get into the like nitty gritty of it with you and who hunt like me. And now now I got uh, Jacob and also Michael Pike is a lot like me too, so I, I tend to hang out with those guys a lot now. But uh, but yeah, dude, I, I feel you. It's it's nice to have someone who who's just like who you can just like talk to it about and like really brainstorm with each other and figure some stuff out. I think I feel like it makes you a lot better hunter. To be honest. No, absolutely. I, my twin brother, we we hunt together, and uh, and he's pretty much the only one I can ever really talk to on the same level and bounce ideas also off of. And my family gets annoyed because that's kind of all we talk about when we're at family outings and you know, they're, they're talking about deer hunting again i'm like well it's the only time i get to do it really you know oh yeah yeah well thankfully i get my fix every week so uh so let's <laughs> let's jump right into it uh adam why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself a little bit of your deer hunting history well i'm i just turned 41 and uh when i grew up in north carolina and in this area in north carolina when i was a kid there really weren't a whole lot of whitetails here there were some but i remember as a child my dad and his buddies would load me up in a, a 1968 International Scout, and we'd drive up to the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is about an hour and a half from here, just to see deer. Early, we'd be there at daylight on Saturdays and just drive around and see deer and get so excited. Those those old men were like kids in a candy store uh, looking for deer because we, there just weren't a whole lot in this area. So back then, it was pretty common for people from this area in North Carolina to go to kind of the middle Virginia area where you can run dogs you can run deer with dogs and um, pretty much they they established a bunch of hunting clubs up there and they would take us kids up there and you know there were a ton of deer up there back then and that's kind of how I I started hunting was chasing deer with dogs uh, and we we commonly use shotguns you hardly ever saw anybody with a rifle um, but I didn't have a clue how to go out in the woods and pick, and pick a stand and, and hunt uh, like that, you know, like kind of like we do today. Mm-hmm. But that was when I was up until I started chasing women, you know, in my late teens, and then I kind of <laughs> had some rutting to do of my own. And and uh, <laughs> w- once I got past that, got married, I, after 9-11, I got sent to uh, an installation in Washington, D.C. for a year. I was in the National Guard, and we got stuck up there doing security, and I got stuck with miles of asphalt around me, and, after about six months of that, I had never been so ready to be in the woods. Um, so when I got back from that one-year deployment, I grabbed hold of my brother, and I was like, we're going hunting. Well, Dad had lost his lease. He'd had that lease for like 10, 15 years, and he lost the lease. I think it was back then it was like $1,200 a year for his hunting lease in Virginia. So he lost it. We didn't have anywhere to go hunt. So at that point, we started hunting public land just because we didn't. We didn't have any place. We didn't even have three acres to hunt of private. We didn't have anything, so we were kind of forced to go to public. How long have you been hunting public, and, and what was that transition like? Like, How long did it take you to kind of 
get over that learning curve. Mm. It was it was quite a process. I was I'm gonna say I was 23 then um, when I got out or got back from that deployment. That was 2002, and uh, I mean we were start from scratch, and 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 it used to be our go-to was just to head to as far. Yeah, you know, I was young, man. My knees were good, my back was good. We just head as far as we could go feasibly, and get back and and hunt bucks that that just had not seen had not seen humans. Um, that was our first go-to, and that kind of happened on accident. My dad had killed a, an eight-pointer back in the 70s on a game land about an hour and a half from the house here, up along the Blue Ridge Parkway, because they had a lot of deer up there. So we went up there, and, and Dad really, it had been so long, he didn't really remember how to get around up there, and we got out of the out of the truck in the parking area about an hour before daylight and just started, this is before, G, you know, we didn't have any smartphones or GPS, we didn't have a map, but we just started walking. Well, about 30 minutes before daylight, we almost went off of a rock, kind of a rock bluff. Um, we were coming through a, a mountain laurel thicket that was a thick you, you really had to go through on your hands and knees. And the wind was blowing pretty heavy, and I got to the edge of a rock bluff. And, you know, I had, a, I had an old handheld flashlight back then. I didn't even have a headlamp. I realized we were at a rock cliff, and we just sat down. We were stuck. So at about daylight, we crawled out on our hands and knees of this mountain laurel thicket and came out in this area where you could see a ways. And the mountain laurel thicket ended up being where the deer were bedded, but we just sat there all day, and I shot my first good eight. It was a pretty nice eight-pointer for North Carolina, and I was hooked after that because by the time we got out of there, it was a two-hour hike out with the deer, and uh, there was no way to drag him out. We ended up having to cut him up and pack him out, which was legal to do even back then in North Carolina. And uh, I was hooked after that because I'd, I'd never seen anything bigger than a spike. And here I'd shot this nice eight-pointer. So the, the next year I brought my brother in. He'd never shot a deer. I took him right back to that same place. I'd come in on in the off-season and, and kind of marked it where I knew where I was at. I knew I could get in there without going off a cliff. So we'd get in there, and the first morning, you know, we'd been reading outdoor life and field and stream and stuff like that. So we took a drag rag with, I think it was some tinks. I think it was Tink's on a drag rag in. So probably about halfway back, we, we stuck a drag rag on, rag on a, a line on one of our feet. We started dragging that drag rag in. And about halfway in, we thought we heard something walking near us in the opening um, to our left. And we thought maybe it was a deer. So we keep going. And right when we get to where we're getting ready to hunt, we split up and got about 200 yards apart in between this bed and area, kind of in a place where we could see those bedding to our left, those bedding to our right, and we heard this <clears throat> This deer came in. My brother, I'll pick on him for a minute, we'd walked in in pretty much nothing but a t-shirt and jeans. Well, he had to strip down and uh, put some fresh socks on and underwear and, and layer up. Well, he was in the middle of layering up, and he had taken that drag rag off, and a big gnarly buck comes right in behind him, while he's been over putting his fresh socks on and blows at him, probably 15 feet behind him. So he, he falls over and watches his buck run off. And about 30 minutes later, he shoots his first good buck, which was not the same buck that had blown at him. Um, I was 200 yards down the hill, and when he shot his buck, I was staring at a nice 10-pointer who had busted me because it was pretty windy that day, and he got up on me before I really knew he was there. But we kind of saw each other at the same time. So by... Eight o'clock that morning, we'd seen three really nice, what you would call, you know, a mound, 
a mount or you know something we're going to put on the wall if we killed the first half hour of daylight the first time i'd ever taken my brother into public land and the second time i'd ever been into public land so that was kind of an eye-opener for us we were hooked after that so what was the difference in, in your opinion from kind of like your experiences hunting that private land when you first kind of got started into deer hunting to go into public you know, what was like the big difference you were seeing between those two areas when it came to this really the deer? Well, a whole lot older age class deer on the public. And back then there wasn't a ton of people even even in the public. If you got back more than half an hour off the road, I mean, I, I'd spend three or four days back there and not run into a, a soul, not even see a person. Not see any fresh markers or anybody cutting limbs off. I mean, you wouldn't see anybody. So you just see a lot older age class deer, and sometimes you walk up on them deer, and it's like they didn't know what you were. They wouldn't mm-hmm. spook because, and you could tell they'd never seen, they hadn't seen a human off the ground before. Um, around what, if you were on private land, you know, everybody was pretty much hunting over a, a corn pile. It's a legal debate here in North Carolina, and people would hunt over a corn pile, and you know, they just go set a tree stand up, bring a bag of corn in once a week on a four-wheeler and, and sitting in a ladder stand. Well, that was something. We were sitting on the ground back then in the middle of these uh, uh, national forests and state forests, and it was just a totally different style of hunting. You know? It felt a lot more adventurous, I can tell you that. Yeah, so was that something that you kind of enjoyed about it because it was so different from what you were kind of used to doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would lay up awake kind of like a kid at Christmas before deer season thinking about, the adventure of going back into the, the middle of these national forests and state forests. I mean, I just couldn't wait for it. Um, even if, and I knew it was going to hurt, especially when we started carrying in my, my first, uh, our first steel climbing stands. You know, they were, they were 30 pounds a piece plus <laughs> your gear. That was not going to be fun. And I knew it getting those things in there. But once we got them in, man, it, it was just, it was the best days of the year. You know, it was just super exciting. You never know knew what you're going to see but you, you knew that at least every other buck was going to have a nice set of horns on his head so adam one thing i want to ask you is you know what was your tactic first starting out on public land which is, sounds like early 2000s and how did that kind of change over the last maybe 10 15 years so we would get back there at least we had to, our our criteria was pretty much uh, an hour walk off the road back then and we would get in between bedding thickets so doe bedding in places where we could see so it it usually wasn't a, a big area that we could see no more than 100 yards wide of open but there would be surrounded by thickets and usually the best places had a terrain funnel mixed in with it too so there might be you know a rock cliff below a bedding thicket um and then a little opening above that rock cliff and then another bedding thicket and it just kind of places that would funnel deer and that was really for for four or five years that was about all we had um we didn't really know much more than that but then we started uh and and, you know we would just hunt during rut we we didn't go in bow season and 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 try any other tactics other than that um but as the years went on i started i got into i guess it was probably at least 10 years ago or more i started reading john eberhardt stuff about and he talks a lot about uh, primary scrape areas and once we kind of got into that that got us into the woods a little bit earlier because typically those places were good a week or two before the main rut was good 
So then, you know, that, that extended our season a little bit, going and looking for these uh, scrape areas. We hunted some scrape lines in between bedding areas. That saw, We saw some action with doing that. And then also some primary scrape areas, which were a whole lot harder to, to locate than the scrape lines were. And we've not found a ton of them. And I, and I can't tell you how many miles we put on the ground in these places and how many pairs of boots we've worn out. But we've only found a handful of really good primary scrape areas in all those years. Um, but we found tons of scrapes and scrape lines. Um, but anyways, we kind of transitioned to hunting those even earlier than what we normally would have been in the woods, which was rifle. We picked up some muzzle loaders and started, this muzzle loader comes in two weeks for a rifle here. We would pick up the muzzle loader and go hunt some scrape areas before the rut. And then we started getting into bedding hunting, which got us into the woods a little bit earlier. Got got into shooting bows and uh, and you know the biggest deer I've gotten so far is early season with a bow. And uh, so now we start uh, opening opening weekend is usually the first or second weekend of September here, and we're in the woods then. Whereas ten years ago, no, probably ten to fifteen years ago, we would have just been going in. Uh, around Thanksgiving when rifle season started. And that was peak rut. It sounds like you had a pretty fun time just getting started because, first off, it didn't seem like there was a whole bunch of hunting pressure out there. Uh, you know, over the years, have you seen an increase in hunting pressure in these areas that you had traditionally hunted in North Carolina? We have, um, and it seems to kind of ebb and flow, um, especially people talk. And even though deer hunters love to talk, it seems to be the first question you're asked is, when you kill a big deer is, hey, where'd you kill that thing at? I don't, very rarely do I ever have anybody ask me, hey, how'd you kill that deer you shot the other week? Usually it's, hey, where'd you kill that at? Mm-hmm. And then when you say, well, yeah, you beat around the bush and try not to say exactly where it was at, well, then they just keep pressing. So we had issues over the years where we'd kill a couple good bucks in a game land and kind of people would figure out where we were at. And then before you knew it, you couldn't find a parking space in those game lands anymore. So we would we just move on to a different one. And then after so many years, it seems like the pressure would kind of slack off again. But it seems to come and go. Um, uh, for example, my brother filmed a, a pretty nice, I'm, I'm going to guess here, I don't, I'm not great at scoring, but I'm going to guess he was in between 120 and 130 inch eight point last year. And he was filming and it was a piebald buck, really pretty piebald buck. Um, so really something, I mean, it would have looked great even a full body mount on this deer. Um, but he filmed it, and it was pretty obvious which game land it was on. Well, we went back this year, and we made the comment last year when he when he shot, or he, he didn't actually pull the trigger on that deer, but um, once we put it on YouTube, we made a comment that, you know, we'll probably not be able to get back in there next year. There'll be so many people. And sure enough, opening weekend, um, there was five or six hunters back in there where he had seen that piebald buck, and, and there was no action in there. We had to actually, we went in there and saw all the sign and just pulled out because we knew there wasn't going to be any action. And we moved to a new area, which is where I killed that 13-pointer on the 19th. Yeah, so you're already off to a pretty dang good start. You said you killed a 13-point in September, right? Yep, it was, um, I guess it was second second week of the season. Yeah, so I, I want to run through the story of that buck real quick, and then I want to really drill down into some tactics, especially I got a, a heap of questions for uh, for primary scrapes, but we'll, we'll hit that in a minute. So what what's the story behind this 13-point? Well, 
you know, we, we'd went to that place where we'd seen the piebald buck from the year before and, and just could tell from that boot track and our experience that they're pro- it was probably already pressured too much. So we just, we backed out and we drove, I want to say it was around 45 minutes to another game land, uh, an area that we'd actually never hunted in and got out and we scouted for about a half a day. And in this particular area, there were not a ton of acorns. And there's no crop land around. The, the closest crop fields are actually uh, cow pastures, and they're probably, I'm going to say they're a 1,000 yards at least from, from the front of the game land. And this game land is really steep and mountainous. Uh, you're talking about you know, over 3,000 feet in elevation. When you start up a hill, you're in between six and 1,200 feet in elevation from the bottom to the top of the hill. That kind of gives you an idea of how the how the ground lays, but when we got in there, we were too far from cropland for them to be feeding on anything down there, except in the middle of the night, and they were either, you know, they were browsing, which, you know, we see a lot of uh, browsing on on, on greenbrier, um, and, and acorns, that was pretty much, seemed to be what they were hitting, but there wasn't a ton of acorns, there were just certain trees that were producing acorns already, and, and there were some of the some of the biggest trees in the area. I think they were red oaks. I'm not a, a tree expert, but pretty sure these were red oaks. But we found two buck beds, and in fact, they were on the opposite sides of the same ridge. So those bucks, one of them would have been bedding with the wind to his back a third of the way down a finger ridge on one side, and then the other one would have been bedding on, the, on as far as the wind goes, on the, the wrong side of the hill. He was basically bedded next to acorns and also next to a, a community scrape, which was probably 20 yards farther away than the hot acorns. And he could see everybody to access the public on one side of him. And he could look down the mountain and see everybody to access the private land. Um, and he was just bedded maybe, I'm going to say 30 yards from a, what I call a community scrape, uh, a scrape that's active pretty much all year long. Uh, but he wasn't really, I noticed he wasn't bedded based on a wind that day. Um, he was bedded where he could see. And he, I think that buck felt confident um, that he could see any, any predator that came in to that area from his bed. Now, my brother was on the other side of the mountain. He got on an eight-pointer and shot. Um, the same morning, just after daylight, we got in about, I think it was about two hours before daylight that morning, we were actually in the tree stand, and my, the buck I took, the 13-pointer, came in right at, at legal shooting light. About 10 minutes after legal shooting light, he came in, and he was getting ready to bed down, but stopped and fell on those acorns. And I shot him, it was pretty close, maybe seven, eight, nine yards, something like that. Um, and then my, you know, I texted my brother and said, hey, you know, think I got one down. I think I heard him crash, and then he texted me back. He said, my buck came in an hour before daylight. He's bedded under me right now. And then about 30 minutes later, he texted me back, and he said, I just shot a nailer, you know, 20-inch wide, eight-point. And uh, so well, that was pretty good morning. But both of those bucks could see the access of that game land. From where they were bedded, they could see anybody coming in or out. They weren't really based, from what I could tell, on the wind. So that's something that we've been talking about a good bit here lately is we we spent so much time talking about deer bedding and whether or not we think they bed with the wind. And uh, pretty much ever since we interviewed Glenn Solomon, which kind of 
kicked off this this wave we've been riding with all these killers like yourself. Um, ever since we interviewed him, that that's kind of come to question uh, whether or not they they really bed with the wind. So you're saying that those bucks were not bedding with the wind? Yeah, the the buck that my brother shot, he actually was bedded. Uh, you you could say he was bedded based on the wind, and he was he was backed up. He had his back against a log. A tree had fallen over. Mm-hmm. He had his back against a log. He was not on the top of the ridge. He was on a, a finger ridge, just just down from the top. I'm, I'm not going to say it was a third of the way down, um, but he was just he wasn't bedded quite on the top, just a little bit farther down than that. But he could definitely, when you sat in his bed, you could see anybody accessing. My buck, he was with a bigger buck, which I've not told many people about that yet, because I'd like to get a shot of that deer next to you. But, um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said it on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, I, my buck was with a buck that would make him look that made him look small. I just couldn't get a shot at the other one. But they were both they were both bedded where just basically. But I think I think they wanted to they wanted to be near the hot fresh food the acorns because those were the only acorns around there that were getting hit and you know they they were so close they could get up and walk it, it wasn't really thick in there but at ground level there was like a 20 yard strip where it was thicker in one spot than it was anywhere else i'm not gonna call it thick but um they were better than that that little thin thin strip but they could poke their heads out five yards and and eat acorns throughout the day and do this just jump right back in and and I think feel secure. But they could also watch that access. Anybody coming in and out was coming through that access. Um, and that was the only two things those betting the betting that those two deer we shot that day had in common was 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 betting based on observation, not on wind. You the the way that you went in there and killed them was pretty unique. How didn't you say you slept in your truck at the parking spot or something? Yeah, we we found years ago that Sometimes when we we rolled in an hour before daylight on public where they're not used to having people in a lot, if it was a if we were after a buck that was that was bedded within you know four or five hundred yards of the parking lot, that buck you on on quiet mornings you could hear the bucks walking off when we got out of the truck. I mean, get up out of their beds and and ease off the other side because they knew the, they knew the game, man. They'd seen cool. that movie before. Well, that so, that just makes me think of how many times that I've gotten out of a car and heard a deer walking off, and been like, "Oh, there's a deer." And who knows? Yeah. It's probably a big old buck. <laughs> <laughs> we we've had it happen multiple times. We we finally we're slow learners, but we finally put two and two together, and we started kind of making it a policy. If we could, we'd get in the night before camp, and then sneak out as quiet as we could in the morning, get in there at least two hours early before they came back from from feeding. And we get up just, you know, within bow shot of the beds. And that's what we've, we've been doing for the last couple of years. And that in this case, it was the first time of the season, third week in September. And we were both successful doing that. Adam, how many times have you shot a deer either in his bed or within, you know, bow range coming back to his bed? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I could accurately answer that but i can tell you it's more than once um the biggest deer uh, i ever got on in ohio excuse me let me take that back the biggest deer we ever filmed in ohio was we got in on his bed not not 50 yards from him 
Um, which he hit, he was actually in one of the primary scrape areas, but um, we actually didn't throw an error at that that deer. We let him go. I, I think I think on YouTube it's like the 2015 archery buck. I can't remember exactly how we had it, but what the title reads on YouTube. But you can actually go in there and, and, and look at that one. But when the deer is coming down the hill, he had just gotten straight up from his bed and came down to us. We've probably had 10 or 20 over the years. And in, in the last couple of years, that numbers went up just because we kind of focused on that up until the rut. We focused on getting in there close to their bed. So, of course, it's happening more just because that's been... Um, we the first one we ever knew when it, when when the light bulb clicked on really for us, we went into it was actually a designated wilderness area. It was in the national forest. It was a new area we'd never hunted before. We walked in and bumped a buck out of his bed. He was on a finger ridge, watching a bottom that had a bunch of scrapes in it, and he was about a hundred yards above the bottom, watching where all that sign was, watching all them deer come through. And he was bedded just on the tip of that finger ridge. And he was not bedded, you know, a third of the way down. He was bedded on the top, but he was bedded on the point. And we found him, kicked him off the bed, and then we sat up about a third of the way up from the bottom, not 75 yards from his bed. And we shot that deer the next day. I think we never, uh, we never really put any tape on his horns, but I'm going to say he was around 130-inch nine-pointer. Uh, but that was the first National Forest book, I think, on YouTube at the time. And uh, and that one was actually killed in the wilderness area. Um, but that was the first one where we were like, aha, we mm-hmm. killed that one straight off his bed. And some does had come through just before that made a bunch of noise. And I think he was coming down out of his bed to investigate. We killed that deer at 11.05. Um, so almost lunchtime. So but that was the biggest one. How do you go about finding beds? Uh, are you looking at them on a map and everything? Like, what are you looking for on a map uh, to find these beds? I don't know that I've... Uh, we are looking on maps, and in the areas that we hunt, you know, they're really steep. Um, but I'll just take, for example, the one we, we got on a a 10-pointer around two weeks ago on the National Forest in Virginia. We were at about uh, 3,500 to 4,000 feet elevation, these mountains we were in. And we actually... We did go and look and find the bed that this 10-pointer was in, and it was about a third of the way up from the from the bottom of the valley where the, the roads typically lie in this area um, to the top of the mountain was about 1,200 feet in elevation, and that buck was bedded probably 300 feet in elevation above the bottom on the first finger ridge point, kind of where the first finger ridge comes up and then flattens out. And they'll flatten out a little ways, and then they'll start back up steep again. Mm-hmm. But he was bedded on that first finger ridge, and we we walked that elevation around that area where we thought they would bed, where they could see off into the hollows below them, and and we intentionally found that buck bed. And then we we got up there, and it was about thirty mile an hour wind, and we tried to sneak in on him just because I I don't like sitting in a tree stand when it's thirty mile an hour wind. Oh, we yeah. had way more fun sneaking around on the ground, and in this case, it, it just about worked out. We got up to forty yards from the deer while he was bedded. And then the wind turned and smacked us in the back of the neck. And as soon as it did, my brother turned around and looked at me. And I saw the buck stand up. He winded us. But he couldn't figure out where we were at. And he ended up turning the wrong way and coming straight towards us. 
and we just couldn't get there was some briars and some mountain law in the way and it just wasn't a great bow shot and my brother he just decided to hold off um i filmed it and i think we just stuck that one on youtube last week but i mean he was a respectable mountain buck but i mean it wasn't anything we were going to mount but um but it was fun to get in there when the wind was up it typically drives me crazy to sit in a tree stand when the wind's blowing 30 mile an hour but getting on the ground opens up a whole other uh, realm of op opportunity for you. So we just flipped around and tried to keep the, the wind in our face, and, and we knew where he was bedded. So we just went and saw if he was home. We figured he would be. Sure enough, in this case he was. He was that buck was actually back, backed up against a fallen tree too. Um, they, they tend to like to do that. So anytime yeah. I'm walking around at that elevation in the National Forest and I'll see a tree down on one of those points like that, I go up and check it because, you know, every couple times I go up and check one, I find a book bed there. That's pretty much exactly what I found last week too, uh, which we'll cover that in the outro a little bit. Um, what I found last week, but uh, so is there anything about a specific bed that, like, when you find it, that makes you think, okay, this is a bed I could probably kill a deer out of, versus one that you're like, I don't know if he's using this a whole lot, or I don't think that this is really huntable or anything like that. Well, I, I like to find one that's got, you know, you take a point and there'll be three or four matted down beds around the end of a point where he can bed based on like a, uh, a northwest, north, northeast wind. Mm -hmm. I like to find a point that's got multiple beds on it. Um, and, and some of them, you can tell they've laid there because you can smell it. You could, you could actually it stinks within 10 or 15 feet of the bed. They spent so much time in it. They've urinated in it so much that you can actually smell it and it smells foul. Um, it smells so kind of like a the, barnyard, right? Yeah. Sort of. And, and the, that 13 pointer, he, he was bedded in a, in a bed just like that. I mean, it was just matted down. There was no question when you walked up to it, there was just no question that that buck wasn't using it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've smelled know, that before. You know, if you find one like that, you're in business. Yeah, yeah. So, are, are now are there beds out there that that you find that you just kind of disregard? I, there have been some stuff that's faint that doesn't look like it's being laid in all the time. It's you know they'll, they'll just be the good ones will just be worn out. They'll be they'll be basically just nothing in them. Um, and the ones that we focus on a lot of the time, um, you know, they'll have two or three rubs right around the bed. They're just ripped up, and they'll have you know a lot of times these bucks up here they'll They'll bed up against the mountain laurel, and they'll rip entire sections of the mountain laurel off with their horns, and you know it's not a spike doing that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's got to be on the the ones we like are on the edge of cover. So, and a lot of times it's on the edge of doe bedding, but they'll you know the does be bedded in the middle of the thicket, the mountain laurel thicket, but the bucks be bedded just on the edge where they can see out into the open expanses around that mountain laurel thicket, and. Uh, if it's too open around around where the buck is bedded, we we probably won't try to hunt it. Um, it's got to be it's got to be pretty thick. Mm -hmm. That's that's definitely been a common theme. A lot of people we've talked to lately have been talking about bucks bedding in places where they have like a visual advantage where they can see. And this is something that we were talking about a whole bunch this this weekend where uh, where we were hunting. So that's definitely pretty fascinating, and it definitely makes you wonder. You know, on those days where you go and scout or you, you hunt your way into a place or whatever, 
and you walk like two miles and you never see anything it makes you wonder how many deer you know saw you from a distance or heard you or whatever and got up and just slipped out of there without you ever even knowing it <laughs> in my experience in this area probably three quarters of the mature bucks in that area spotted you walking in um they just they stay ten. the wind just i can vouch for the north carolina and the virginia mountains i don't know about the rest of the united states but the wind here like if it says it's a, it's a north wind i'll drive by the fire department up here next to the house and they got a flag up there and it it'll be blowing out of the south and then i'll come back about a half an hour later it'll be blowing out of the east and then it just tends to it tends to swirl um, we don't get a lot of consistent winds unless it's a storm front coming through so um it seems like it benefits the deer more to bed based on uh security and observation than it does off of the wind mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's something we dealt with all weekend man i didn't have a single sit this weekend where the wind didn't blow from every single direction not a single one <laughs> it's so, maddening yeah it, it really is and that's kind of what got us talking about it is like man like there, there came a point where i was sitting there one day i was like there's no way a buck could just sit here and bed like completely based off of wind because i mean dude there's no way like he, he wouldn't be able to to use that advantage the whole time and especially after we talked to guys like yourself and glenn and all them i think that that bucks and especially where i've found like for sure definite established beds before uh, i think that they're definitely especially in the deep south i think they're going based off of straight cover and i think they're going into security cover and they're basing everything off that and maybe they bed according to the wind like within that security cover but when we have such an abundance of cover down here i don't think that they necessarily have to you know bed with the wind because i mean man they get in the middle of like a briar thicket or even on the edge of it i mean they're covered man there's nothing gonna get in there and get them i mean especially not a person uh yeah i always enjoy asking questions about beds like that and i like how you said that one of them uh which i'm sure you've had multiple ones like this but that was bedded above uh, a bottom with a bunch of scrapes in it or maybe usually let me ask you this are they usually bedded uh, above like the main trails on the ridge, even when they're bedded like maybe three quarters of the way up the ridge instead of on top, they're still probably looking down at that main trail. Is that something you've observed? Yep. Yeah, I think if there's two or three trails coming around that ridge uh, leading into the bottom, they'll, sometimes they'll be at that top trail, just above that top trail. Um, we've got a buck we're going to try this year that I found a shed in this bed last year. Um, and this is one of those beds that's used over and over and over again. I killed an 11-pointer. In fact, we got that on video back in 2015 or 2016. It's a North Carolina buck. But anyways, I shot him coming out of a bed because he could hear a bunch of does coming around the bottom trails. And it was peak rut. Here, it was November 28th, which is pretty much right on the back end of the rut here. But that buck was bedded watching all the action in that bottom that morning. He just couldn't stand anymore. It came straight off that hill. And that's kind of how we figured out where that... Until we killed that buck, we didn't know that bed was there. Now, we backtracked him and found it, and now there's a buck there every single year. Like I said, we found a, a 10-pointer shed in it back in January or February, and we're going to try to hunt him this year. But, uh, but he was bedded at the, I think it was three trails coming around the side of that hill, kind of going off of public onto private where they had some crops planted, and he was bedded about maybe 10 yards above that top trail, just off the top. Adam, one thing I want to ask you about is uh, exit routes on these beds. <clears throat> I, I know your that 13-point you had, 
I, I watched the video on that, which is a really sweet video. Uh, now we just gotta get you a we gotta get you a camera with some really good low light capabilities. <laughs> but uh, anyways, you know, talk to us. What kind of exit trails are you seeing from a lot of these beds? Are they coming from multiple different directions, uh, entrance and exit trails, or are they normally pretty consistent on the area they're getting into their beds? Well, the here we try to set up based on thermals instead of wind because you know it seems like the thermals are consistent and the wind is not where we hunt. So. These bucks were coming straight up out of the bottom of the 13-pointer and his his uh, and his daddy that he was with. They were coming straight up out of the bottom, I think, working that thermal all the way up the mountain. Um, now, how he, if I was hunting that buck in the evening, I would have attempted to get close enough to shoot him off the, the closest acorns. He had, in fact, on that video, I think I, I showed three or four different wore-down, beat-down trails that came out of his bed. So he kind of had trails going off in every direction, but there wasn't food in every direction. So, plus that primary scrape, or excuse me, uh, community scrape was right there next to the food. So I would have hunted him on that community scrape and that food. I wouldn't have tried to go on one of those other trails and hunt him. Um, and that's the reason I sat up there. I'm pretty sure we run that buck off the evening before when we came in. And I was going to ask you that, you know, how it, it seems like, especially watching that video, that's like... You know, you, you say it's thick, and it is kind of thick on the ground, you know, within that first, you know, two or three feet of, the of like, you know, the, the surface. But it's still really open, especially, you know, seeing a very long way, especially from those beds. Yeah, that, that has to make it hard to hunt evenings in areas that you know deer are bedding and get close enough that you're going to get a shot opportunity during daylight hours. Because uh, right. I remember looking at his bed, and, you know, you kind of, you know, your brother kind of panned around, and I was like, man, dude. That would be super hard to just ease in there. I mean, get within even 100, 150 yards of where that bed was located. Well, that that's kind of like that's kind of why we like to get in there super, super early and hunt them early season in the morning instead of the evening because we have more luck. Plus, we we know they're not in there. They're not back. Most bucks are not going to come back to bed before an hour or so before daylight. Uh, in the case of the 13-pointer, he messed up and didn't come back until daylight. Um, but we and, and we bust a lot of deer out like that. We do have deer that come in, hit our backtrack, and they, and they just don't. They don't usually blow that time I won. They usually just walk off. They'll stop where our back trail was and walk off if they bust us. But um, probably every other buck or 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 one out of three, you know, we'll get shot at like that. Whereas in the evening, I've hunted for years in the evening trying to catch one coming out of his bed and, and and i've killed very few like that um i tend to have more luck in the early season at least in this area going in super early in the morning just because you know they're not going to be there you can get in there on them you can sit up almost right over the bed without being spotted yes yeah, that, that, that's awesome i remember that was one thing you told me you know the first time we spoke which got me fired up because you don't hear that from anybody else like, i've never heard somebody Talking about like early season, getting in stupid early and getting right over a bed or right in that area where you're going to be able to shoot that bed, uh, which is awesome because, again, that's what we're all about. You know, I'm all about finding guys like yourself that, you know, they have these, I would call it almost like an off-the-wall tactic, but you have the wall of deer to back it up in the footage, too. The footage is the best part. <laughs> so that is, that's exciting to kind of hear that aspect that, you know, you're having a lot of success very early in the season, you know, in, in September and going into October, hunting over beds or right on beds 
uh, and getting there early in the morning. That, that's awesome because, again, that's one thing I think a lot of guys don't have experience doing. Now, are you finding most of these beds in the off-season, or do you ever you know, find and locate a bed and be able to kill a deer either right before season or during season? Well, I'll just use the 13-pointer again as an example. That We'd never been in there before. That was the, that was the first morning. We came in the, the evening before because our normal area was shot. It was too much pressure. And we just walked around, and, and, and we busted. I'm sure we busted those bucks off their beds. They probably slipped out the minute we come up out of that parking lot. Um, but it was what you consider like a soft bump. You know, we didn't go in there and smack him on the tail. He just saw us and, and eased off over the hill, I feel like. Um but that was, you know, we'd never been in there before. That was the first time. We we do hunt good beds from years past. Um, we're going to try that this weekend, actually. Um, the rut hasn't quite kicked in here. So we're going to try some primary scrape areas and, and try to get near beds that we that we have found off-season. But that, you know, the two we shot September 19th, we found those the evening before, hung the stands, got in that first morning. So we'll do it both ways. So I, 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 really, I really, 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 really want to get into this primary scrape thing because I love scrapes. Like, people like to smack talk them. People are like, oh, they're only made at night, blah, 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 blah. Well, I know that John Eberhart has talked about primary scrapes. I've actually never, like, read anything or, or like, listened to what he says about primary scrapes. But... uh I have my own ideas about primary scrapes, and I want to, I want to run this past you, and I want to, and then I want to get your ideas on it to see whether or not what you think about what I've seen. So, my my best area that I've ever found scrapes in is basically an overlooked spot. It's behind, uh, basically like a parking lot. Let's just say, um, and, and it's on some public land. It's on some national forest, and uh, there's this access trail that goes right above it, and there's a cutover next to this access trail and you walk through that cutover, which this is like head high nastiness and you walk through it for about 30 yards and you hit some trees and you walk down this little draw that goes further down into the cutover and you get down there and it kind of opens up a little bit and right down there where it opens, you've got basically two big, huge scrapes. I mean, just like, just like the, the size, of like a car hood or something. And, uh, and then you got a bunch of little scrapes that start popping up as the season goes through. But basically, you got this little little hardwood draw. On one side, you got a head high, thick cutover. On the other side, you got some select cut pines, which are also extremely thick. And I put a camera on that on one of those big scrapes. And dude, I mean, I got so many bucks on that camera, way outside of the rut, all times of year, almost all in daytime, you know. And I think it's just because. I was kind of in one of those overlooked pockets of deer where there was just kind of some deer stacked in there. But also, um, uh, that scrape is like right on the bedding. So it was very easy for them to just get up and go check it. So that's kind of my, what I, I call it a community scrape area. Um, but I know other people call it like primary scrape area. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. And also, to, to tie a bow around it, uh, there's that um, there's like no way I can get in there and hunt it. It's just in such a weird spot. It's it's extremely hard to hunt, especially because if there's any wind at all, it's gonna swirl really really bad in there. So uh, it's definitely a unique location. So uh, now I'm pretty interested to hear your thoughts on on primary scrape areas. I I gotta be honest. Uh, we 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 skip around a lot. We don't hunt a lot of the same. Like we'll usually hunt one stand one day each year and then move on to the next one. I, I I'd be tempted during high wind to sneak into that spot um 
just based on what I'm hearing. But and, and you're probably going to get busted by most of the deer. But yeah, Mike, you, you might get lucky. You, you got to be in the game and you got to be there. Um, if it looks that good, I'd I'd give it at least one shot. But I would almost bet there's there's bucks in that thicket on the edge, close enough to where they can hear everything that comes in and out of the scrape. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and maybe even if they could, I don't know if you look for the beds on the surrounding points, but I would, you know, I, I would bet there'd be either they can see it or they can hear it, one or the other or both. Mm-hmm. Um, but we found a, a lot in, in in similar situations is what you're talking about. One of them that comes to mind, and and uh, I'll use this as an example because we it's on video. We were in uh, Ohio, and we were having, it was a record heat that year, 77 degrees in November, three days in a row. And the normal spot we hunted was three and a half miles back in, hour and 15-minute walk, in, hour and 15 out. And it was just, it was brutal. It was killing us. You know, we were, we were in our late 30s at the time, and um, we decided to back out. A, a, a rainstorm came in, perfect time to go scout a new area. So we scouted an area about 15 minutes off the road, so a lot a lot easier to get to. And we found a bottom kind of like what you're talking about. Those two those two thickets. There was some hardwoods in between the thickets. There was a pond, and it was it was a low lying area around the pond, and it was just unbelievable the amount of scrapes. I'm, I'm thinking we counted in between 30 and 40 fresh scrapes down around the backside of this pond on the side of the pond that was not close to the road. So we found all these scrapes. And it, it ended up, the buck, which ended up being, I, I'm not big on the score, but I'm going to guess he was in between 160 and 180. You can get on YouTube and look for yourself. But it was uh, Ohio 2015. He was a 14-pointer, uh, probably 20 to 22 inches wide. Really nice, heavy buck, four or five years old. He was bedded. He was making all those scrapes. And he was bedded on the edge of public and private overlooking that bottom where all those scrapes were. And he actually laid down a couple scrapes on video right in front of us. Um, but we, we went in during the rain, quietly found those scrapes, hung the stand, came back the next day when the rain moved out and that cold front kicked in, it dropped 40 degrees. And sure enough, we, we got within 35 yards of that buck. And it, it was funny because we stood there that morning at the back of the truck debating on whether or not my brother should take a crossbow or a bow. And he was like, ah, it's been a couple of years since, since I killed one of the bow. I really want to kill one of the bow. But if he had a crossbow in the stand with him, he did. He wouldn't have had to stood up, and he could have shot from a seated position, and there, there's he would have had no problem shooting that buck. But when he stood up to shoot that deer, there was limbs in the way, and if he it was so quiet that morning, if if he got down low enough to to have a clear shooting lane, the buck was going to see him. So he let he gave it a pass and let it go. But he'd had a a pretty nice, really almost a Boone and Crockett deer that was coming to check those scrapes. Some some deer had come through and worked their way through them scrapes. There was actually a doe that was coming in the heat, a young buck messing with her, and he heard, he was better watching them scrapes. He heard them come through, and he just couldn't stand it. He got up, and it was probably 8.30, and he walked straight down there and then started putting down. After he figured out she wasn't quite ready, he let that young buck chase her, and he started putting down more scrapes right underneath the stand. Adam, can you give us like give us your definition of a primary scrape? What is it, and, and why is that something that you like to try to target if you can find it? So a lot of people, when they first see a scrape or find a scrape, it might be you know eighteen inches around or, or two feet around, and there's just one scrape. And, and, and usually, if you keep walking, you'll find a scrape line. Uh, that's not normally what we set up on. If it's a primary scrape, it's going to be 
not inside of bedding cover, but right next to bedding cover, where several bucks or one or the main buck of the area can come straight out of bedding or or can even overlook it. Um, and usually they're they're a lot bigger than the scrapes that are on a scrape line in our experience. Um, and you can tell they're used year after year, but they'll be multiple scrapes, and and like, you know, every suitable tree with a suitable limb in that area will will have a scrape. Um, it might be anywhere. Like we found one one year, um, and and these were your typical what you'd hear people refer to as carhood scrapes. Um, but there was only three of them. But they're all together on the edge of cover, next to two separate buck beds. And this was uh, late September. We actually had two nice bucks come in and, and spar in those scrapes um, on public land. Um, just that's the first place they came when they got out of bed that evening. And that was in, you know, it wasn't even October yet. I think it was September 29th or 30th. Um, but they'll be really thick where they're at, but not thick enough for them to actually be bedded in. But they'll be sitting in the thick stuff, bedded, watching that. And, and we found a bunch of those like that. That one was actually on a ridge where it starts to drop off, but it was still kind of flat, but it was a thick ridge. Um, but there'll be a ton of them. In the case of the one in Ohio, there was 30 to 40 scrapes in that one area. Um, the other one I can think of off the top of my head is kind of a there's a there's a knoll in the middle of the national forest it's a mountain that's probably 400 yards across and the, do you know the difference in uh mount laurel and rhododendron i do okay so rhododendron when it gets really really thick around those creek bottoms you you sometimes can't even get through it um mount laurel i usually push my way through but the rhododendron could just could be brutal even for deer um so this one's surrounded this entire knoll was surrounded by rhododendron for you know 340 degrees but then there's that one little 20 degree area where there's opening and right in that opening where they enter and exit that bedding area which is that mountain um there's a, a, a nice primary scrape area with multiple scrapes they're just big car hood scrapes one down used year after year um and those bucks can sit on that that mountain and not only can they watch those scrapes but on the other side of the hill they can watch anything coming down the road, and they can also watch the only camping area in the whole spot. So it's, it's just like a whole lot of things coming together right there. Mm-hmm. But it's there, it's not in the bedding cover. It's on the edge of the bedding cover, at least it has been in our experience. But I've, like I said, we put a lot of miles in our boots, and we've only found a handful of true primary scrape areas over the years. Now, we've had some success hunting just scrape lines, but that's a whole, you know, we, we don't typically focus on that. Do you pay attention to the licking branches? Like, if you find, like, a bunch of licking branches that are all broken, twisted up, does that get you excited? Yeah, more more excited than the size of the scrape itself. Okay. Um, but so, you know, if there's 20 or 30 licking branches and over one car hood size scrape, you've, you've, you've got either a community scrape or, or, depending on the time of the year, a primary scrape area. You know, you if it's you, you can kind of tell when you, when you get in there on in the pre-rut whether or not it's, it's, it's their primary scrape but I would I would bet that some of these community scrapes are going to be some of those primary scrapes when the pre-rut's kicking in that's uh that's something that I actually tell people about a good bit whenever I'm talking about scrapes because people ask like well how do you know like a good scrape versus like just kind of one of those random scrapes that a buck lays down when it's going through the woods and I'm like 
what I, what I always look for at least uh, is like man, when I find like a big old scrape, or even if it's a small scrape, but it has like ten licking branches, then that gets me very interested because that tells me that of either like a couple deer use it a bunch or a bunch of deer use it, you know. Because uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know how their mind works, but I'd assume like. If I'm a buck and I'm walking up to a scrape, I want to put another scrape next to it and have my scent in that scrape or, or whatever. But uh, I've always had my best pictures around, like, especially down here, man. We got, like, these beech trees that grow out, and you'll have, like, a younger beech tree in a bottom. And it just it has limbs at, like, perfect scrape height all the way around it. And you'll literally find a scrape that goes all the way around a tree. I mean, just, just like that. And that's the kind of thing that I'll put a, a camera on, and I'll just get all kinds of buck pictures on it even outside of the rut i mean that's like my go-to thing if i'm going to put a trail camera on something 95 percent of the time it's going to be on a scrape like that yep and and, you know a lot of people walk up on a regular scrape line and think you know that might be a scrape area but you know you can tell when there's 30 deer visiting the scrape and when there's one deer visiting you know one deer came through one time pre-rut and scratched out some leaves almost looks like a turkey scratch in some of those some of the scrape lines so you know you can tell a big difference once, once you get an eye for it you can tell adam uh a question i get for you when it comes to hunting scrapes I, I personally have never had success doing it but it's because i don't think i've ever found an area that y'all kind of are describing when it comes to like a primary scrape area uh when, when it comes to looking for scrapes and, and kind of finding that one spot that looks the best give me an example maybe something you've had in the past of like an area that's like the perfect spot that you know, hey, I'm I'm going to have deer come through here during daylight hours. No, it's going to be thick, for sure. Um, I've got a place, and we'll just talk about this weekend. Um, I've got a place that's, uh, there's just a small opening in the middle of a uh, rhododendron and mountain laurel thicket, and it's got scrapes and rubs in it every single year. There's, there's trails coming in from multiple directions, and when that pre-rut rolls in, um, if you sit there, you know, if you, if you pull an all-day sit, you're, you're just, you're going to see, you're going to see deer, and you're probably going to see multiple bucks, um, and I've got multiple setups like that that have scrapes in them that are just, in, they're super thick, and have multiple trails coming through where those scrapes are, they're obvious, and, um, and you know, I just feel like, I mean, you just know it when you see it, you're going to see deer coming through especially pre-rut and rut you know i don't have a ton of luck with a bunch of deer you know outside of the rut coming into the scrapes but when, it, when that pre-rut kicks in if it's thick you've got a chance to see them in the daylight if it, if you can see a long way it's probably not gonna happen for you yeah no i i, I totally understand that so pretty much you're gonna want to either in the thick cover or right on the edge of a thick area that not only does it set up good for bedding, but you're seeing the sign there uh, that's telling you that there's, you know, that there are deer in the area. There's quite a few deer. Now does hunting pressure affect where you find these areas? Like, do you find like, you know, if hunting pressure kicks up and you find like a pocket of where a lot of deer are at, you'll find more of these primary scrape areas. Yes. Yeah. During the rut at least because those, uh, you know, like, like the spot with the big one from Ohio, um, there was nobody hunting in there. And that, that buck wasn't going far until a hot doe came through. He was not going far from that bed, you know, 40 yards, 50 yards during the daylight. But uh, he was just hit, checking those scrapes and watching everything to, coming to and from those scrapes. It was sticking there where he was at, and there was no hunting pressure. Um, now, I don't know where that, that buck normally bedded. We ended up 
finding this bed, but it wasn't super mashed down like it, like one that it that he used all year year long. It just seemed like it was a a rut based uh, bed, which we found a lot of those over the years. But um, and 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 the there was private land backed up to this this particular bunk's bed, um, so that the private guys would push all the way back in there and pushed him back to the edge of public, and the public guys would come off the road and push him back to the edge of private, but he was kind of that little line there on the edge. Um, you know, which can be tricky, because if you shoot one and he runs over on private, you know, you got a situation where you got to go ask the landowner for permission to shoot the deer, but we found a lot of a lot of the deer using those areas and being pushed into pockets along the edge of the private and public. So, uh... We just had an, an audio change. Now we're back. Audio should sound better now. Uh, Jacob, what were you saying? Yeah, so we were kind of talking about, you know, what's an ideal setup look like when you're trying to hunt these, you know, primary uh, scrape areas. Because, again, I've never had success doing it in the past. And I've really never focused on hunting scrapes because I never seemed like I'd ever find deer during daylight movement. So, you know, we we're talking a little about hunting pressure and how hunting pressure can kind of force deer into an area that there's you know, limited to no hunting pressure. All those deer are very comfortable in there and you can find a lot of scrapes in those areas. So, you know, Adam, you said like in Ohio, that's what you were kind of finding, you know, there wasn't much hunting sign or none at all in the area that that big buck was at. And that's one reason you think he was in there along with that primary scrape area, correct? Yeah, that's right. It was on the, uh, and it was on the edge of public and private. And I think they'd he'd been pushed back in there from both sides. Gotcha. Yeah, see, that's something that's very interesting because, you know, we talk about this all the time. And again, in the outro, we'll go in more detail about this. But this past weekend when we were hunting in North Alabama, we found an area that I sat and by myself, I, was, I think I saw 31 deer in one day in, in a bachelor group of five bucks. Yep. And we, we hadn't seen any deer previously to that. And the hunting pressure on this parcel is, uh, Andrew, how many man days do you think that one parcel had? We'll, oh, we'll just say that. Well over 100, for sure. For sure, so, well over 100. Uh-huh. 100 man days in two weeks, which is ridiculous, on a parcel that is so small, it doesn't, like, almost, I can't comprehend it. It is less than 500 acres. So, but the thing is, there's a ton of deer there, and there's been no big bucks killed on that, even though we know there's a lot of big deer on that property, so. Yeah, and they are stacked in that bedding area, but we'll talk about that in the outro, but yeah, it's it's fascinating how much they get pushed into pockets, at least down here. Well, what I'm trying to say is, you know, we're not even close to being in the pre-rut in that area. Like, not even close. You know, we're two, two at least two months out uh, before that's even even the case. But I, I would suspect that, um, you know, at that time frame, I'm sure these areas would have unbelievable uh, amounts of scrapes in those areas that these deer are stacked into. So, that brings me to a question. When you're hunting, especially like Ohio, which, you know, of course, you know, is an out-of-state trip for you, uh, or if you're trying to go to a new piece of public you know, how do you try to go about scouting in season and try to find these, you know, primary scrape areas if it's an area that maybe you haven't ever tried this before, tried to look for these uh, these areas before? Are you, are you talking rut or just any time of the season? Well, really any time of the season, but especially getting into pre-rut, which, you know, most of the country right now, we're starting to get into pre-rut other than a few states. You know, what would you be looking for at this time frame to try to find one of these primary scrape areas, you know, going into November? Well, I, I I probably would not go into it uh, assuming that I would find a primary scrape area because we we've, we've only found so many of them. But uh, you know, when it's hit, when we're heading into the pre-rut, we're kind of starting to look 
Um, I mean, we've got to be next to uh, doe bedding, uh, preferably in between doe bedding, and then it's got to have some sign to it too. So we might check, um, we might mark a bunch of, uh, you know, bedding spots that we think are bedding and then go in and visually verify. Uh, but it's got to have some sign. You know, you, you can tell. There's a lot of deer moving in between those bedding areas. Uh, you can tell. And, and and usually we would find those primary scrape areas when we're doing that. You know, you get right up next to a bedding area, and that's where you find those primary scrape areas. Um, but we might also, what we're probably going in there looking for pre-rut is um, areas between the bedding, um, not, not in the bedding, but between them, uh, and where there's some kind of funnel. You know, we've got a good place in Ohio that we've killed multiple nice bucks at. That's a straight, it's a rock cliff in between two bedding areas. And these are actually, up there they do a lot of land management on their public land. So they've got uh, cutovers. And there's a rock cliff and a steep drop off just in between two bedding areas. And we've we've had as many as three shooter bucks in between those bedding areas. It's, it's a couple hundred yards wide strip of, of oaks there. We've had as many as three shooter bucks multiple times a at the same time you know just we've been sitting there and could see three shooter bucks at one time um multiple times that's happened in between that that one bedding area with that with that terrain funnel uh, next to it mm -hmm. and, and we'll find you know in those areas a lot of those areas that the briars you know green briar they they love to feed on green briar and um we'll have you know a row of green briars just eaten down completely to the ground in between these bedding areas and that might be so something like that you might 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 be worth a sit to you know um, but what we usually happen on those primary scrape areas while we're just looking for, you know, pre-rut and rut spots. Got you. Well, when it comes to just hunting, you know, throughout the season, is there any one time of the season that you have more success or consistently more success than other times? I mean, is that, you know, majority during the rut or, you know, early season, late season? What does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely the rut. I mean, I, 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 love, um, I love to rut hunt. It's just that, that's what gets me excited. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I, my biggest buck was with a bow, you know, early season. I'm, I'm grateful for him, but just nothing makes you feel like being in the woods more than this time of the year with the leaves changing colors and the cold fronts coming in and, you know, those temperatures getting down, the buck's starting to rut. I mean, it's just a fun time to be in the woods. And, and for us, it's, it's more about the fun than it is killing the deer, you know. So I have way more fun when you can go in there and have a chance of seeing a deer all day long during the rut. Um, and, and invariably you will definitely get on some mature bucks during the rut. Um, some of them do get out there and run wild and chase women. Um, so just like the young bucks and we've had a, our most success during the rut, but we've spent our most time in the wood woods during the rut. So mm -hmm. um, like I said, my biggest bucks early season, um, hunting over the beds, but I'm a rut guy and, uh, and I love getting in it. I can't wait to get out there with my new rifle during the rut. I mean, I'm just uh, like a kid at Christmas waiting for it. Oh, and, oh yeah. <laughs> well, well, a question that also comes up during the rut and just especially that pre-rut time frame. Do you, you or your brother, do y'all implement calling at all, whether it's rattling or using grunt or even hunting on the ground and just kind of, uh, you know, kind of imitating a fight? Yes. Um, so we, we do hunt off the ground a lot and probably half our bucks have killed been killed off the ground especially if it's windy we love to hunt off the ground in the rain or wind because um, just basically because i don't like getting up in a tree stand during the rain or wind um and it's fun to hunt off the ground especially in areas where they know there's not a lot of the hunters and you're not gonna mess some you're not likely to mess somebody else's hunt up um but 
we have found the most success using calls pre-rut when there's been no one else in there. So what I mean by that is the a spot that we hunted that was an hour walk in. It was uh, the one I'm thinking of was it was two or three year old cutover. Um, we would always ease into that place in the afternoon, two or three o'clock in the afternoon um, during bow season at the, the very beginning of the pre-rut before anybody else got back in there. And those deer had not heard calling yet. And we would slip in to the thicket on there was a thicket on top of a knoll and we would get in that thicket and, and grunt just call and call and call about every 20 30 minutes we we do another round of calling and those deer they had to come in in this particular spot it was thick on top of the mountain so they had to come all the way into the tree to, to see what was making all that noise if it would have been an open area i don't think it would have worked near as well or maybe not at all but uh, uh the first one we ever killed like that well, we, we called it the foghorn buck because he let off a roar that we'd never even heard of we'd never seen on tv we actually didn't even know what it was the first time we heard it and i would sound really silly trying to recreate that for you now but um he he was just uh the taxidermist said it was the oldest the taxidermist been doing taxidermy work for over 30 years he said it was the oldest buck he'd ever seen um but my brother killed him he was around 135 inch nine point but he he just replicated from that same thicket i'm talking about on top of a mountain he heard that thing uh, roaring from one, there was a valley in between them and the, and the buck was on the top of the adjacent ridge. And my brother just started, he got his grunt calling out and started just mimicking, basically taunting that buck, doing the exact same thing. That buck came straight to him, straight to the bottom of the tree from probably six to 800 yards away. That's how good they can hear and tell where you're at. I mean, he came straight in, old, old buck. We had a heck of a time getting him out, but... Um, but that was the biggest buck my brother shot to date. But he came straight in to 20 yards, turned broadside, and, side, and he let him have it. But he's shot, my brother probably shot uh, five, six, seven bucks. I don't know. I, I don't remember all of them over the years out of that same thicket at that time of the year calling. Um, but again, they have to come all the way in because it's so thick right there. They got to come all the way in to see. Um, and they're coming up based on the thermals, you know, the thermals are going by the time he called those bucks in it was late morning every single time or early evening so the thermals were going straight up so those deer couldn't really get below him and catch his wind they had to come all the way up to the top of that mountain all the way on him um if he'd have done that for at first light or at last light he'd have probably been busted mm -hmm. but doing it after the thermal switch um or whatever they call it when the, you know when it changes and the thermals really really start kicking um, he, had, he had to really wait for that before he'd get on top of that mountain and call. Otherwise, he'd have got busted from that downdraft early in the morning and late in the evening. That's awesome. And see, that's one thing I want to start implementing more this year. Uh, one of our guests, which I, I know you said you're you know, off, off the air. You, you were telling me that you're a listener of the podcast and just kind of found out about it. Um, but our podcast we did with Adrian Farley, which I think is like episode 125. Um, he blew my mind by telling me how much he rattles in the south he hunts a pretty heavy pressure uh national forest in alabama and he has a ton of success rattling bucks uh in areas and you know his whole his whole thing is is getting in areas like you said that's super thick that the deer has to come to the tree to see what's there uh and to see you know what deer he thinks are fighting there um which i think that's the absolute ticket and it seems like that's what your brother's having a lot of success doing 
Uh, is there anything else y'all do when it comes to implementing, you know, calling that, you know, is worth taking notes on? Um, never, never rattled one in. Uh, the only other thing I can think of is we, we've used bleak calls a lot in that same situation where if a buck's getting bias, hit a bleak call and, and it doesn't work every time, but sometimes the bleak will draw a buck back. I don't know why it works so good, but, uh, I've, I've never called a buck back in that's already gotten kind of around me with a grunt tube, but I have caught them back in with a bleak call. I don't know that we've ever, uh, rattled one in. That's something I'm going to have to work on. Yeah. Well, I mean. Seems like those situations that you and your brother are having, you know, those thick areas, maybe it's worth trying out and seeing if it would work for you. I really want to do it really bad. And I know a spot in Tennessee I can do it on the ground uh, where, where you're putting an obstacle to your back so that the deer really can't circle behind you. Because everybody I've talked to that is experienced on calling the deer, for the most part, always seem to try to get downwind of you if possible to try to smell what's making the noise um, and smell those deer. But you know, trying to put an obstacle to your back and, and call from the ground, either hunting with a muzzleloader or a rifle. And, and I know a spot I can do that at. Uh, just unfortunately, I won't be able to get up there for muzzleloader season, at least the opening weekend. Um, but that's one thing I'd love to try to implement. And again, y'all seem like y'all have had success, you know, implementing the grunt, you know, grunt call. Uh, so that, that's pretty exciting. Um, when, when it comes to hunting where you're hunting, you know, one thing I, I've got another question on is what kind of, access are you doing to are you doing anything that's creative on these areas that you hunt from early season until late season you know what does access look like to you and is there anything creative that you're doing other than like what you're saying you know coming in the night before and you know sleeping in the truck to sleep up and you know get up there early season and shoot a deer out of his bed is there anything else you're doing that uh is you know helping you be successful as far as access goes we have we've had to use waiters uh, several different game lands we've hunted in the past. Um, we've definitely had to get in using waders over some deep creeks and stuff. Um, other than that, a lot of these mountain game lands we're hunting are so steep that there's really only, unless you have private land adjacent to it, there's only so many ways you can get in. Um, I don't think the access affects us quite as much because we only, we, we jump around. We don't get married to a stand. We jump around all the time. So the most we ever hunt a spot's a day, day and a half, and then we're done. And by that time, we've stunk it up, and we're we're taking off to another place we've scout we've scouted in the past. And so I don't think access bothers us quite as much. Again, I did mention earlier where we a lot of times we'll get in if we're hunting in the morning, we'll get in you know the night before and, and park that way they don't hear and see our uh, our trucks coming in because a lot of these deer are closer to the road than you think they are. So. Um, that has helped us probably more than anything, and and both of our trucks are pretty quiet. We don't have a uh, big jack. I mean, I'm not trying to talk junk about anybody. It's got a big jacked up truck with a big muffler, but um, you know, I'll be sitting on the national forest and I'll hear, you know, a truck coming from ten miles, and it'll, you know, be a jacked up, have a big muffler on it, um, and then you'll see, a, you know, some old guy hunting in a little Nissan V6 come through, and all you can hear is gravel popping. Mm -hmm. well, I'm sure the deer feel the same way I do. They they know the game and they can hear, um, they can hear that loud truck a lot more than they hear that uh, that little Nissan V6. Uh, I use that as an example because I was watching that the other weekend on some national horse in Virginia. But um, I, I, you know, as far as access goes, I think you know that has something. Them hearing and seeing you coming on the road um, plays a lot into it because they'll just slip off the other side of the hill. Um, if they're, if they're on to you, they'll slip off the other side of the hill. But a lot of times if we get there the night before, 
we can sit there and run the generator at night and they don't act the same. They don't pay any attention to the generator or voices down there in the middle of the night. But now when it's time for them to bed, they're paying attention. Yeah, I can, I, I relate with the whole gravel thing for sure, because, uh, I've definitely been sitting there, especially I, the, I first noticed it when I was turkey hunting, where when someone would come through either walking down a road and like popping gravel really loud or come driving down a road in a loud truck and then stop, I mean, the turkeys would instantly change how they were acting. I mean, they would just shut off when they thought that, you know, someone was hanging around the area. And I mean, surely deer do the same thing. I mean, you know, they're laying out there all night, walking around, doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, in that kind of gray light time when they know it's about to start getting daylight and everything, they start hearing all these trucks coming in the woods. You know, they got to be like, eh, something's up. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Jacob, were you going to expand on that more? Well, yes, a little bit, but really, you know, I'm kind of more interested in, you know, you, you live in North Carolina, or yeah, you live in North Carolina, you know, hunt North Carolina public lands, you know, for you, what is like the one thing that you really, really enjoy about hunting public land and the one experience maybe that you've really enjoyed over the last, you know, almost 20 years you've been doing it uh, from, you know, the different states you've hunted on? One marrying it down to one will be tough, um, but but really it's the the adventure of it. Um, like I said, we grew up around in an area that uh, kind of the Piedmont of North Carolina, and it's it's just really typical for most of the people around here to uh, to set up permanent stands and throw out bait, and uh, and it just is it's it's just not exciting like uh, getting out there in the middle of the wilderness um, and getting after those old bucks on their turf. Um, you know, not using, I'm throwing off on bait here. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to make funny bait, use the bait or anything. It's just not my thing. Um, but it just the adventure of getting out there and, and getting lost in these public lands. And I recommend it for these young guys. Um, you know, if you're in your twenties, um, you can kill deer, you can kill nice bucks right off the road, but I, I implore you don't let me hunt those cause I'm 41. Um, you guys need to get back there. Uh, as far as you can in these in these in these areas way off the road where there's no pressure while while you're young enough to do it and and get some of those adventurous hunts in because you know i i, I can count all the hunts is like i've got 40 acres around the house here i own and you know we hunt it when there's nothing else to do but it's just not, it didn't have that same feeling as being on that those wilderness areas uh, what i call wilderness areas those 10,000 acre tracks those 50,000 acre tracks this one we're going to this weekend is a hundred fifty thousand acre track. Um, it's just a whole different feeling of adventure, um, and it just in general, I don't, I don't know that I could narrow it down to one, one great hunt. But um, that's what gets me excited. That's what gets me up, and that's what I look forward to every season. It's just getting lost in the wilderness while I can. Um, you know, it, it's just a different feeling than those hunts uh, close to the road. And I recommend it for any of the young guys. Adam, one question I got to ask because it, it keeps coming to my head. Is there anything that you do that you can say is what helps you be as successful as you and your brother have been on public land, not only in you know North Carolina, but also like in Ohio as well? Um, well, when we were younger, you know, there was nothing we would not consider doing for a buck, you know, short of prostitution. I mean, there was very little. We were committed. Um, <laughs> 
I mean, it, we were committed. I'll just say that there was nothing we would we would not do uh, when our bodies would let us do. You know, when we were young bucks, you know. Um, but uh, sticking with it, uh, I've seen a lot of guys. We've had a lot of guys. hundred, you know, we started filming ten years ago, and um, a lot of guys. You know, you start carrying that camera gear, and uh, and back then we hunted out of climbers. You start carrying all that weight in there and getting up at uh, one in the morning and and leaving out and go, driving to public land, and it, it's pretty rough on the body, but we stayed at it and it drove a lot of the guys that used to film with us off. Um, we lost a lot of people over the years just cause it was a little rough, but we just stuck with it and eventually kind of figured things out. Um, and, uh, and, and like I said, just, just keep at it. Um, eventually it'll happen. You have bad years. You, it seems like some, sometimes you, 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 every time you go in the woods, you see a nice buck, but then you might go two years and have a, have a dry spell. Don't give up in those dry spells. Uh, uh if, if it gets to be like work, switch it up and, and do something different that, that feels more like fun. Um, we've hunted a lot of different ways over the years. We'll have to try to keep it, uh, keep it fun. You know, if it, if it starts feeling like work, um, maybe switch it up a little bit. That way you'll stick with it, but sticking with it. If you, you know, if you stick with it long enough, you guys are going to have success. And, and that's for all the listeners out there. Another thing I got to ask you is after talking with you, this is even the second time speaking with you. The one thing I keep picking up from you is you, you sound like you have a lot of confidence in everything that you do when you go in the woods, you know, whether or not, you know, you're going to kill a deer in that hunt, but you're going in with the mindset of, you know, what you're looking for, you know, what you should be finding. And it's just about really getting the right position and making the shot happen. If the deer cooperate, you know, what gives you the confidence that you have, you know, hunting as long as you have on public land to go in there and, and have the mindset that, you know, you're going to do what it takes to be able to find that buck and be able to get an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, really, really pure statistics. I mean, you're if you, if you stick with it and do what's worked in the past, you know, you and do it long enough, you're eventually it's going to happen. It, and and the older you get, the more you watch that happen, and and it, I think that helps breed confidence. Um, uh, and, and if so, you know, we switch it up a lot. You know, if 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 we're not if the one thing we've been doing is not working, um, I'll just give you an example and i think we got this one i'm not sure if it's on youtube or not but um you know we went in and we were trying to hunt this terrain funnel in between two bedding areas and the wind was 30 miles an hour it was probably five degrees outside and it was just a miserable sit we were kind of getting down the dumps you know I, several times i thought i was going to get dumped out of the tree stand the, the tree was moving so much back and forth but you know we looked at each other and like you know what we've, we've had luck in the past just walking around in high winds so we we got out of the stand and bailed out and dove straight into a bedding area and just started easing through the bedding area and within 30 minutes we'd seen three bucks and shot one um you know it just changed like that from a from one of those miserable hunts where you're not having any fun to one of the most exciting hunts that there was but both of those situations had panned out for us in the past sitting in it was it was rut sitting in between bedding areas on a train funnel that's worked out for us a bunch of times it wasn't working that day. We weren't having fun doing it that day. So we just, you know, threw caution to the wind and got down and tried something else that's worked in the past. Um, but we, at our age, we won't, we won't sit in a stand long if it's not working. We've got to be, uh, we've got to be doing something that, that, that's fun and that's worked in the past. We walked into the wind that day through the thickets and we'll, we'll get downwind and just ease when the high wind or rain's going on. And, um, you know, we'll just ease through the thickets. And like I said, we're not coming back usually. The most we put into a spot is probably two days max. 
So if we if they smell us in there, not a big deal. We're not coming back. Um, we're gonna we're gonna swing for the fences and and get in there and try to kill one. Don't hang and hope, hang and hunt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't do the hang and hope anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the the last thing that I've got to cover at least is uh, I re- I'm really curious about terrain. We've kind of bounced around it a little bit. You've been talking about like rock bands and stuff like that, funneling deer. What are some uh, good terrain features that you look for? Well, we we've had some success on uh, on saddles, but not open saddles. They got to be be thick saddles. How in thick? between the bed. Um, you know, I, you, you shouldn't be able to see, you should not be able to see a hundred yards, you know, you, mm-hmm. and some of the woods up here on these national forests where they haven't been doing cutovers for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, it gets pretty open. But if you, if you can see more than 50 yards, it, it's probably, uh, too open to be sitting up on. Um, and also, uh, some of the train funnels, you know, between these bedding areas that we're hunting, it, it might just be two or three trails at that top one third uh you know the top one third of a mountain when the thermals are rising in between two bed areas, it might not even be a rock bluff it might just be it's late morning the thermals are rising there's this is a there are there is historic sign of deer crossing in between these two bed areas um whereas in the first thing in the morning or the last thing in the evening you if you want to hunt that same thing you might want the train funnel might be the bottom third when those when those uh when the thermals are falling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might not be a physical train funnel. It might just be, you know, based on the thermals. Like I said, we don't hunt a lot of, uh, wind here. We, we hunt more thermals. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then we've had the rock bluffs. We've had, you know, just areas where it's thick, like a, especially a lot of greenbrier. I think I mentioned that earlier. Oh yeah. If you've got two thickets and you got a big patch of greenbrier in between them, it seems like they'll cross in that greenbrier, um, mm-hmm. or something like that. I think y'all talk about privet a lot or whatever. We don't oh, have yeah. much of that here, but uh, um, uh, benches. We've had a lot of you know. If there's a bench in between two uh, two bed nares during the rut, we'll 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 give the benches a, a sit if they've got sign in them. You know, if they're if they're vacant, and you know, I've seen plenty of benches that didn't have anything on them. But um, some benches can be hot, especially when there's uh, when there's oaks dropping. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the thermals follow the sun in the evenings? Yeah, I've, I, I've definitely seen that, and I, and I think it's way more consistent than hunting the wind. At least, at least where we hunt, the areas we hunt. So, do you try and set up uh, with the sun at your back, knowing that the thermals are going to kind of move that direction? Um, I don't, I don't recall ever getting that detailed into it. Um, I don't know that. I'd like to say I was that advanced and <laughs> and set up like that, <laughs> Me but too. I, I'd be lying. I'd be lying to you. Um, <laughs> usually, I'm looking for for good trees with cover and and and, sh- and shot angles, and you know we can't really trim uh, shooting lanes on the national forest, so we're kind of limited to which tree we can get in. We're happy if we can find one tree that works. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we'll try not to cross any trails, but we've got more of that in mind than we do actually, uh, you know, the, with a, the sun being to our back or whatever. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP20 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast.
True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance, absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable. Like, everybody's jaws were dropping. Like, when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as a thick saddle goes, I haven't really hunted a thick saddle yet this year, but I've been saving a spot. Um, it's actually in Georgia and it's up on a hill and there's like a cutover and it's like a, it's probably 10 years old now. It's got like kind of tall, like 15 foot pines in it. And underneath it is just, thick 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 nasty stuff kind of stuff a deer can get old in and there's a saddle running smack through that stuff and you cannot see into it no matter what you do so i'm going to sit on the edge of it and see what happens uh i think i'm going to kill a buck there i got a good feeling about that spot but uh but yeah that seems to be the uh that's that seems to be a pattern once again with a lot of guys especially uh we talked to robert carter not long ago who's uh, pretty well known in southeast georgia for being a killer himself and uh his tactic was more feed trees, you know, in these flat swamp bottoms. But instead of just hunting a feed tree, he's trying to find a feed tree either inside of or on the edge of like a good bedding thicket. And that's kind of his tactic that he's had a lot of success on. And it sounds like you're doing something similar just with terrain features. You're trying to find a some kind of good funnel that also holds good cover where a deer might feel comfortable moving in, in daylight hours, right? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, and some of those funnels are just too thick. To even get a tree stand in, so you might have to hunt off the ground. Or, um, but if that's where the sign is, and you think they're going to be moving there in the daylight, you'll do what you can to get in there and hunt it. Um, you know, we, we're not above digging a, at least on private land, digging, digging a foxhole or, uh, or sitting up on the ground like we're turkey hunting to shoot underneath some of that, that thick stuff in in those funnels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, out of curiosity, have you done a lot of midday hunting? Yes. When we go more than an hour into the game land, we don't come out. So we. We've done a ton of midday hunting. Yeah. Now, are there is there any specific tips for midday hunting you have? Hmm. Don't fall asleep. Um, <laughs> let's see. That's that seems to be my problem. Um, we have had some success uh, in in bedding. You know, either either in between bedding or slap in the middle of bedding um, midday. Up until I think the latest I've ever seen a shooter buck was one one o five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then I've never seen a, a nice buck in between one Oh five and three thirty. but now that three thirty time rolls around, we're ready. We're, we're back in the stand, ready to go. Uh, a lot of times if we're, if we're tired, we'll get down to the tree and just sit at the base of the tree 
Um, and we've seen a lot of deer like that. I had deer come in, gotten shots off the ground like that. But um, we'll get down and sometimes you just need 30 minutes out of that tree stand or saddle just to reset, you know, so we'll get down. But we'll stay in the woods, especially if it's a rut. We're not coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jacob, you got anything on that? Yeah, well, not on that. But, um, you know, you mentioned earlier on you were talking about your brother uh, getting a shot opportunity off the ground with his bow while y'all were kind of like easing through like a thick area. Do y'all implement ground hunting with archery equipment much at all during the season if the conditions are right for it? Yeah, if, if it's windy or it's raining, um, we'll, we'll put the camera gear up if it's raining and we'll ease around with the archery equipment. Um, and if it's windy, we'll, you know, we'll keep the camera out and we intentionally ease around the, like we did a video a couple of weeks ago where we snuck around behind a buck where he was bedded and tried to get a shot on him. But, you know, we, that whole day was sneaking around. It was just, we don't like hunting in the high wind in our tree stands. So, and we love trying to use the high wind to, to get close to one that we think's bedded. Um, so we do, we do that a lot. I've, we've killed, we've killed probably half our deer off the ground. Um, and I've killed, I killed my biggest buck in Ohio off the ground with a bow. That was on our second DVD. It was actually, he was running the spray line. Um, but I shot him off the ground at seven yards with a bow. All right. You got to tell us that. Yeah. I want to hear that story really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, we were, we were, uh, the story's good and bad. Um, I had actually connected, um, we were hunting in between two thickets on a train funnel. I had connected with a nice wide nine pointer the night before. Um, I had a, a red, uh, lighted knock and watched the, de- I knew which way the deer ran off. It was right at last light. We filmed it. Um, we backed out. Um, the blood was good for about 300 yards and then it kind of trailed off. So we backed out and came back the next morning at daylight. And this, this buck, after I shot him, he was running down a, uh, a scrape line we, we figured out in fact that's how we located that scrape line which is pretty much used every year um but he was he it was near a creek you know how they seem to run to water when they're wounded the scrape line was along a creek and we just started easing along well, it became apparent after a while that the deer um i had shot him in no man's land you know between the spine and the top of the lungs um somewhere up in there where it was pretty much a meat shot and i hate to do that um, but I'd be lying if, if I said it didn't happen. So in this case it did, but we were easing along, uh, following that blood trail and, uh, we had just stopped and sat down and we're talking to each other saying, Hey, you know, I, I don't think this was a fatal shot. We're not going to find this deer. Um, but we decided to keep walking that scrape line into the wind. So we eased along that scrape line and walked headlong into a, a nice, you know, one twenty one thirty eight pointer. I never had him scored, but um just straight off the ground and he you know during the rut there in that zone man he was moving head down um i saw him way before he saw me duck behind a tree my brother had the camera and was behind another tree and uh, i drew back when he went through a little old uh, a little ditch i drew back and i when he come up out of that ditch i just drilled him um but that was uh i guess that was only when i killed off the ground uh with a bow up there so but that was on a scrape line. Jacob? Oh, God, sorry. I was muted. Apologize about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I, I feel like that would be a fantastic time to ground hunt. Maybe is during the rut. You know, in the situation where maybe you're new to a property, you don't know what's going on. If you can find some hot sign like that and just kind of stay mobile, uh, you know, because the deer are moving, you know, especially throughout the day, uh, that could be super efficient. And, dude, that sounds like a hell, one hell of a hunt. And talk about party 
blood pumping. I mean, dude, I, I'd be shaking like a leaf having a deer that freaking close run up on me like that. Uh, oh. I've killed, I've shot a couple does off the ground with my bow in like rain or you know high wind situations, and had a chance at a buck as well doing the same thing and just and just screwed that opportunity up um, by just moving too quickly. But uh, dude, it is something that is extremely that to me ground hunting with a bow gets me more excited than anything else. Period. I mean, I have a doe coming on. I have a spike coming. I just I actually I shot a spike in Tennessee this year that we talked about, and um, he came in off the ground shot him off the ground and I got it on camera and it was just one of those things that there's nothing that gets me more excited than bow hunting off the ground. There's just really isn't. Um, and especially, man, you put a good decent sized buck in front of you, man, I'd be a, I'd be shaking like a leaf. Um, but that, that's awesome. I mean, it's really cool how you guys seem like you very much so implement any tactic that you think is going to work at that time. And you're not stuck in a way you're not stuck in like old ways where like, Oh, we only do it this way. Like we only sit in a tree stand. You know, you're talking about getting conditions like, Hey, you know, if, if it's too sketchy being a tree stand, we're going to be on the ground. You know, we're going to cover some ground and, and try to make it happen, which is awesome. Cause again, you're just trying to make it happen, dude. And I think that's the most realistic thing about you. You know, you're, you guys aren't hunting no private land. You're not hunting, you know, high managed, you know, a high managed lease or anything like that. Uh, you know, you're, you're burning rubber on the ground and you're really just trying to, again, make it happen. And that's exciting. Oh, yeah, and make it fun. If yeah, it's not exactly. fun, switch it up. That's what it's yeah. supposed to be about. Yep, dude, exactly. That's one reason why I really do enjoy public lands because, you know, not only do we have, you know, thousands upon thousands of acres that me and Andrew can hunt on, but, you know, we hunt multiple states. And it's exciting, especially when you go to another state. Now, I haven't deer hunted in Ohio yet, but, you know, hunting in Tennessee, I'd love it. It's because the deer numbers are extremely high. There's a very good buck-to-doe ratio. Uh a really good age class of older age class bucks and it's just fun to go someplace else that you've really maybe never been before you have a little bit of experience but you're out there on public land and you're like man i have an opportunity to be able to kill like last year i had the opportunity to kill the biggest freaking white tail i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs> on public land in tennessee and i, I freaking screwed that up uh, i'm telling you listen i could make it i could be a guide on public land i just can't i can't pull that trigger very well <laughs> <laughs> i've had those days yeah, dude. Oh man, it kills me. But uh, that's exciting. It's 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 fun to talk to somebody like yourself. That you know, it sounds like really it'd be awesome. Maybe let's do a podcast in the future with you and your brother on, and just kind of have you guys go back and forth about these different experiences y'all have had uh, just in the past, and really what y'all been doing different now. Uh, because y'all seem like two guys that not only y'all make some really cool videos, and I've, I've checked out y'all's YouTube channel, but uh, it seems like y'all have a ton of experiences that. You know, a lot of our listeners would really appreciate kind of just hearing from and learning because maybe they've experienced the same thing. Oh yeah, and I, I'm sure he would. He'd be willing to uh, to do a podcast anytime. And I just love talking deer hunting. So anytime you guys want to call, we're we're willing to we're willing to talk deer hunting. Awesome. Man. Well, awesome. All right, Jacob, yep. you got any like a uh, concluding thoughts or anything? Uh, not much. I mean, probably the only other thing I'd like to ask you, uh, Adam, is. And just kind of a, a last uh, concluding question, which would be, you know, what's a tip you'd give to, you know, myself, Andrew, and our listeners uh, for this fall, you know, getting into the rut, you know, what's a tip you'd give us for, you know, chasing some of these public land deer, whether, you know, you're in your region of the country or different parts of the Southeast or, you know, anywhere else in North America, you know, what's a tip you'd give us to maybe have some success on some public land? Um, yeah, during the rut, uh, it, especially peak rut, 
Um, if you can find a bedding area that's that's in an overlook spot or well off the road, um, you, you're in business. Um, especially if you can find multiple bedding areas. But you know, a lot of times, especially peak rut, we'll get up in the middle of a in the middle of a thicket and just do an all day hunt. Um, and th- and those are the most fun it seems like. But if you can find something overlooked, a thicket, I, I always I always gravitate towards thick areas. So if I had to give one tip, that would be it. A number one was a thick area during the rut, um, and and have fun with it. If it's not whatever you're doing is not working, um, get up and move and go uh, and do something different. Um, and if you hear deer in the thicket, fifty yards away, more than twice, and you can't see them, get up and move over there. That's uh, you, they seem to like that, you know, especially when they're during the rut, when those does are nesters, they'll run this one spot for an hour, you know, um, and they'll keep coming back through it. We've had we've made that mistake a bunch, just keep sitting and hoping and thinking, oh, well, maybe they'll come over here. But um, no, we get down and we move to where the action is. Dang, that's a good tip. That is a really, really good tip. That happened this past weekend, which we'll talk about in the outro. Yes, sir. That is, <laughs> I'm not letting that happen again this year. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck, guys. I hope y'all kill some big ones. Hey, man. Well, awesome. We appreciate it. Well, I was, well, was going to say before we let you go, where can if anybody wants to reach out to you and ask you any questions on Facebook or check out y'all's videos, where can they find y'all? Well, uh, they can. Uh, we don't do a lot on Facebook, but we do answer messages on on Facebook. So, Budget Bucks Outdoors is 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 uh, the name of the company. We've got a couple DVDs on uh, BudgetBucksOutdoors.com. Now, I warn you, they're pretty amateur. We started filming the public land 10 years ago, uh, 2008, 2009, something like that. And, uh, you know, it's just amateur stuff. You know, we definitely don't have any mad video and skills. Um, but we've got BudgetBucksOutdoors.com. we got a couple DVDs on there for sale on Amazon. Um, but mostly we're into the YouTube stuff now. So they can they can ask us questions on YouTube at BudgetBucksOutdoors. Um, if you know, if you just Google that on YouTube. Um, you'll find us. You can always ask questions right there on the videos, or you can email us at budgetbucksoutdoors.gmail.com. Yeah, and go check out, everyone listening right now, go check out the hunt from September 19th because it is ridiculous. Unfortunately, you did, I mean, well, I won't say what happened with your deer, but your brother's footage is crazy, and looking at those buck beds was ridiculous. So y'all might want to go check that out. So we, we appreciate it. Hey, Adam, once again, man, we appreciate you coming on. We'll have to get you guys back on maybe a little bit later in the season or in the off season and kind of talk about maybe some postseason scouting and everything else y'all do, uh, you know, throughout the year. But, man, good luck with you this uh, the rest of this season. Hopefully y'all can put some deer down and we'll stay in touch, okay? All right, you too. Hope y'all have a great run. Thanks. All right, that's the end of that episode. Now it is me and old Myers here for the outro. Myers, how you doing? Dude, I'm fired up, and I'm definitely going to start implementing some of these tactics, especially when it comes to finding uh, some primary scrape areas, because I feel like we could find some of those around here. I know you've sure. seen them before. Uh, we found like some of these... Well, okay, let me take this back. I don't think that you've ever found a primary scrape area, but I know you found community scrape, because I've been with you when we found them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't killed a deer over them, but as far as trail camera pictures go, I've had ridiculous success over scrapes like that, man. I mean, like I said, the the deer in that one area that I told about in the, earlier in the podcast, they rut like early February. And I'm talking these bucks are coming in in daylight working these scrapes from like September to like, I think I pulled the camera in like late November, early December. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. It, it is truly ridiculous. And I mean, it's like, I was thinking I was telling you the other day, like I hardly ever got any nighttime pictures. I mean, that's how hot that spot was. Now it's a really hard spot to get in and hunt. Uh, now that I've been looking at it, I think I'd actually need to go in there and hunt it uh, on a on a morning and get it in like way before daylight. And I, I think it would need to be a pretty calm day or either that or I'd have to have like just the right wind where it'll funnel down that draw and shoot out from back where I came from. Um, th- I think that'd be the only way I can hunt that spot. But I've never, I've sat at one time two years ago when I first found it. And other than that, I've just left it alone because I've been hunting other places. But I think this year I'm going to take a swing at it. Yeah. I mean, like Adam said, you know, as good as you made it seem, you know, he said he, he would dabble. He'd try it, dude. Go in there and try to make it happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, it, if it doesn't work, okay. I mean, you haven't hunted in two years. What's the yeah. big deal? <laughs> Which, I mean, I had a bunch of rack bucks on it. Nothing, no huge bucks. But for where I'm hunting, I mean, they're pretty good bucks. Uh, a couple of them were. But that was, you know, two years ago. I had one eight point yeah. on camera, like one good racked eight point that i mean would probably he's right on the edge of a deer that i'd like be tempted to shoulder mount which i i I don't know i wouldn't shoulder mount a whole lot of deer i mean i really like euro mounts but i'd be tempted to maybe shoulder mount him just because i was racked look but again that was two years ago so there's no telling you know if even if two of those deer made it you know they're probably really good bucks now because i mean there's probably eight of them uh that were just like anything from like a little basket six to like a pretty good mainframe eight point yeah but I was going to ask you, you know, what did you kind of take away from this episode that, you know, you either thought was interesting or maybe you can think of areas that you can kind of start implementing some of this? Definitely the access thing, uh, because, you know, it brings to mind like all these different spots where it just makes so much sense for the deer to be there, you know, at watching that access, um, which I think that we figured out, you know, this past weekend, which again, we'll talk about here in just a second, but, uh, I mean, I was out squirrel hunting the other day on the National Forest near me, and there's like this little privet thicket next to the parking lot. And I got out, went in there, went squirrel hunting, and uh, that's the day I found the feed tree, and I I killed a a gray squirrel, and I killed a swamp rabbit, and I was on my way out, and I had just, I mean, just shot a squirrel, like, I don't know, probably 60 to 70 yards from like where the truck was, and I get up next to the truck, and I get next to that privet thicket, and I kind of swing towards it just a little bit to like kind of check it out. And sure enough, dude, there's three does sitting there. I mean, probably 50 yards from the truck, about 70 yards from me where, from where I just shot that shotgun uh, like three times. And, uh, and they were just like laid up there next to the truck, man. I mean, just monitoring it. And there's I found buck sign coming out the backside of it from uh, years past. So it's like I know they're using it. Now it's just a matter of figuring out how to get in there and take advantage of it. Yeah, which is very interesting because I can think of multiple places on the management area that, you know, we hunt over here that deer could be bedded, I mean, right within, I mean, 40, 50 yards of where you're parking the truck, dude. Mm -hmm. And it's just like those deer, kind of like what you you and me have talked about this, but really, you know, uh, Adam really hit on it pretty hard was, you know, you come in in the mornings to hunt these spots or even in the afternoons and these deer will get up go over the other side of the hill or just you know kind of swing around you walk through and you never see these deer you don't see them they just kind of ease off uh maybe they come back to bed maybe they just move off and go to a different you know bedding location um but i can now think of areas that are just like that i mean every time you're going to go in there 
uh, I feel like you're going to be bumping deer. Mm-hmm. And you might not know of it. Like you talked about, you know, how many times do you walk through an area and now think about how many deer have eased off that I just never saw? Mm-hmm. Especially, especially after this weekend. Yes, especially. I'm like, dude, how many deer especially – I don't want to give too many details of like the train, but how many de- how many times we were easing through some of the spots there, and we are seeing deer sign, but we never saw a deer. Then a deer just kind of get up and ease off the backside, dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, and especially not high winds when like he could see, he couldn't hear very good, but they could definitely see, and they could just ease off, and we would probably never see him. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and there were a lot of instances that which we covered a little bit in the last episode. So I mean. Like, if anyone listened to the last episode, we actually recorded it at the truck. We had hunted, it was the last afternoon that we were all hunting, and uh, we recorded it at the trucks next to where we were hunting. Uh, We're about to go in for that afternoon hunt. So, uh, if you don't follow our socials or anything, then you have no idea how that afternoon hunt went. So, uh, Jacob, you want to kind of, how do we break this down? I can't remember what all we said about it, (laughs) to be honest. I'm trying trying to figure out what do we not want to say about it. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, shoot, it don't matter. Everyone's already hunting anyways. <laughs> yeah. Might as well give I don't the know. coordinates. <laughs> yeah, no, pretty much. Just, this message is, Andrew, I'll give it to you. Um, <laughs> no, <won't>. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> lies. I want to. I, I just want to count how many messages we get. By, oh, man, Jacob said you'd uh, give the chorus. So. <laughs> but, no, uh, but the afternoon, hunt, the afternoon hunt was interesting just because we all kind of went to certain areas because we, we – thought we had located and figured out we located where a lot of these deer were kind of pushed into because of the hunting pressure. And we all kind of sat around it. And I think I, I saw five deer. Uh, it was, it was two does and three fawns and they were nowhere close to even being, even close to being range. To be honest, if I didn't have binos, I would have just saw them for a split second before they kind of got out of feeding. But, uh, dude, I didn't have a single deer come into that sweet spot I had. Uh, which was unfortunate. Nothing came within bow range, which was kind of sad, because uh, I was sitting there right where that bachelor group of bucks had come through that morning, and no deer came back through there. All the other deer were like out in the open, like really far away from me. Yeah, uh, I, I know Tyler saw three, three, two deer, three deer. I think he saw three deer, a bucket, buck and two does. Yeah, he saw and a they real were like, nice buck. Yeah, a real nice buck, nice enough buck. He like was blown up the text message about it. And he had, dude, he had me fired up because Tyler was not far from me. He might have been 150, 200 yards. And, uh, you know, he just gets, he's texting, he's like, take it. You know, the buck's headed, the buck's headed up towards you. He's headed up towards the trucks. And, dude, I'm like, turned around the saddle, like, dude, I'm like, heart pounded, not shaking, but I was on the verge <laughs> of like, a, if a squirrel jumped out in front of me, I would have started shaking, dude. <laughs> like, no joke. I was like, it's coming. <laughs> But I was so fired up. I was like, please, for the love of God, because I was sitting on one of two funnels that the deer was going to come up. And I'm like, he's got to be coming, dude. He's got to be coming. He's got to be coming. And, dude, I sit there, I sit there, I sit there. And then finally, like, just nothing shows. I was like, dang. Like, what a letdown. Um, well, the funny thing is, but, is that we probably walked right past him on the walk out. I mean, we had to have walked right past him on the way out. Yes, or at for least, sure. or at least you, you and Tyler. T- yeah, me and Tyler definitely walked. Yes, that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we definitely walked past him on the way out, which is kind of kind of interesting to say the least, uh, just because the way the property lays out. But dude, that was just crazy. Because I mean, it, he was like, man, he texted me that deer was coming through. He was like, man, it was two, it was eighty yards. I was like, man, 
Oh, man, I was so fired up. And, again, I'm just kind of getting excited now thinking about it again. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good time. Um, biggest takeaway from that is two things. What One, for me, it was two things. One, uh, just how much, how much, like, pressure deer can withstand, like, and not get killed. Uh, and not get killed, yes. This is, like, literally, it's less than 500 acres, okay? It is not big, and I mean, a not, not, I wouldn't say half, but I mean a decent portion of it, maybe 30-something percent of it, is wide open cut bean fields, and then a lot of it is kind of open hardwoods. There's not, there's good cover on it, but there's not, like, that much cover. You know, it's not like a 50-acre clear cut or something like that. You got, like, buffer strips and other stuff like that. Um, and Hunter said... On the first day, there was, like, 15 trucks in there, and I, I think I said in the last episode, like, I was like, 15? I don't know about that. It might be exaggerating. And then the day that I was in there, there was eight trucks in there besides me. So, uh, just going off, like, man days. So, like, a man day would be, like, uh, how would you describe a man day, Jacob? Like, yeah, and I, to be honest, I didn't understand man day until probably, like, this past year. A man day... The way that the way they describe it is for every hunter out there, for every person that's in the woods that's sitting, that counts as one man day per person. Mm-hmm. So if you have 50, if fifteen guys out there for one day, that's fifteen man days in one day. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. So so yeah, exactly. So so opening day, there's like fifteen man days at least, assuming that none of those fifteen trucks brought somebody else with them. Which you know, I don't know about that. But anyways, so I mean like. Man, the, this parcel got hammered. I mean, just hammered. And to be honest, I mean, we probably would have abandoned it if we hadn't heard from some folks, including the biologist, that there was some nice bucks over there uh, that, that people had been seeing in the back one of these fields. are like, yeah, we yesterday we saw a good buck back there. I'm like, what? This, this has been getting freaking hammered. So, I mean, case in point, there was like a hundred man days on this place, just between everyone that was hunting it, and this these bucks were not dead, and we we confirmed that when Tyler went in there and saw that one. It's like after all that, all that pressure, he he has not had an arrow slipped through him yet, which blows my well, mind. Well, not just that. See, I saw five bucks that morning, and and one was a very nice deer. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two two rack bucks, or yeah, two rack bucks, and then two spikes, which don't really care about the spikes, but. That was impressive enough to kind of see all that, but also had a, I believe, was another book slip up behind me. I think it's the front half of the deer, just the back half of the deer uh, as it went to bed. But one thing I think we kind of realized was a lot of these deer are in areas you can't get a stand. Yeah. Uh, or, or if you can get a stand, you're not going to be in a, in a, if you can get in a tree, you're probably going to struggle to get in the right spot to have that deer come within bow range. Yeah. That's definitely true. Definitely true. So that's that's the other takeaway is one, it's just amazing that they haven't got killed yet. Because if someone was trying to kill me and I had that many people out there for that many days, I'm pretty sure I'd end up getting stuck by an arrow. But anyways, uh, the other thing is, I mean, we were aggressive. We were all up in those bedding areas, dude. We were all back in the thick cover for days at a time, like several hunts in a row. And we were still seeing these bucks all, all the way up until we left. And Michael kept hunting it, and he kept seeing these bucks in there. So it's like, it's like we couldn't kick them out of those areas, dude. They wouldn't leave because they knew that they were safe. And this goes back to the whole thing we're talking about: is like, if I'm a buck, and I'm living back in that little like thicket, like cattail, briar thicket, or whatever it is, and I've stayed alive for that long with that much pressure, 
like I'd be scared to leave it, you know, <laughs> if I was a deer. So, uh, I mean, we were back there putting the pressure on for sure. And, you know, a lot of people think about, oh, I bumped the buck. He's probably gone. He's probably left. I mean, dude, we bumped deer every single time we went in there and we still kept seeing them over and over and over again. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, uh, to be honest, I don't think, I think they cared, but they don't care. They don't care enough to actually leave. Well, in their mind, their cover is working. I mean, they didn't get killed. I mean, like the, yep. like when we were talking about Michael slipping past that, what he thinks was a nice buck, and he slips by it, and he just hears it sl- slinking through the water from where he had just walked by. I mean, that joker probably let him walk right by it and then got up and turned around and slipped back through the swamp. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's, working just, it's working just how it's supposed to. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. We're probably hunting some of the smartest freaking bucks we've ever chased on public land up there. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, if you, if you think if you think about it, dude, that's exactly. I mean, maybe not the smartest, but the, they understand the habitat that they're in, and they understand where they can go. That there's no hunting, like that they're they're not consistently having people chase them, even if it's fifty yards from where guys are sitting or twenty yards from where guys are sitting. They're in a spot that, unless you're ballsy, dude, I'm talking, you know, you know, throw on a special piece of equipment and you're on the ground. You're not going to get opportunities that a lot of these do. You're just not, uh, unless you get lucky, dude, and you just slip up. And I mean, you're still going to be on the ground, and you just have a deer slip up past you, and you can get a shot. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be tough, but it was a fun hunt, dude. And the camp, we didn't talk much about the podcast on the podcast uh, from this past week, but uh, the camp was fun, man. I mean, I got up there like you had been up there for a few days. But, uh, dude, it was a blast kind of getting everybody together for old Swamp Ass 2019. <laughs> yeah, it was fun, even with all the rain. It was a really good time. I'm just glad yeah, I, I shot a Dell on the first day. It took the took the weight off my shoulders, man. Oh, really? Second day? First full day? No, that, oh, was, no. that, that, that was my first day of hunting. First afternoon sit. Oh, yeah, because you, yeah, yeah, right, you hunted that morning, and the spot I hunted, the gar hole. And yep. then you went to the money hole to go kill some kill deer. I got you. I see how it is, man. Oh yeah, dude. So. Yeah, well, that doe worked like. Which funny thing about that doe? Um, so we were earlier in the episode we were talking about like these finger ridges and like points coming off the ridge. I wish I could show the map of where I killed this thing because it's like so classic of of this, but I can't do that. But uh, but so like like I said, we like I saw this like point like this this ridge comes to a point. Like, there's a bench running around, and the bench runs around the point of the ridge, and there's, like, a flat right there. Like, almost like what you'd call, like, a like the finger ridge. And uh, so I came up one side of the mountain, hit that bench, and wrapped around to that thing, and I hit, I hit that hot feed sign, and there was buck sign there all over the place, and, and I wasn't there 10 minutes, and I killed that doe. So, uh, I mean, that's pretty much exactly what we talked about in the episode, was that, that kind of terrain feature. So that was pretty interesting. Um, and she was out you know, an hour before dark, you know, which it was a doe, but she's kind of a bigger doe. I don't know. I was probably pretty close to bedding, especially when I tracked her and saw just the amount of buck sign in there. I was like, yep, I probably maybe even bumped a buck when I walked up in here. Cause I mean, it's some good looking stuff. There were some fallen trees right there on the edge of that point, uh, with some thick cover around them. And there was a big old scrape and a big old fresh rub right there, uh, right mm. next to that big fallen tree. I was like, golly, I think I might've bumped him, <laughs> but I was happy yeah, with the go- doe. Then you should go back up there, get up there, get set two hours before daylight, sit on top of that point, probably have a big old buck come right back to bed and just freaking run air through his ribs. Well, that sounds pull, like a fabulous pull, idea. Pull an Adam Jolly, man. Come on now. 
<laughs> yeah, seriously. Dude, for real, listen, anyone that's still listening to podcasts, you need to go watch that freaking hunt from that buck he killed earlier this season because it is, it is fascinating to say the least. Especially when you see like where he's hunting and like kind of like the, like what it looks like, it is crazy. Like it's a spot when I'm looking at it, I'm like, nothing about that area tells me I would want to hunt it. Just from like my personal experience is hunting the deep south because of like he's talking about it's thick and it's thick on the ground. Like again, ground level, kind of like deer level, but like you standing around, I mean, you can see someone standing in a lot of that. I mean, it looks like 200 yards away, you'd be able to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's just fascinating how those big bucks were using those areas, and especially the giant buck that he said was with the deer he killed. Because the deer he killed was a freaking big deer, like a frick is a big deer. <laughs> but the deer he said that's with it made that one look tiny. So hopefully, oh my god, I hope he kills that deer. That would be awesome, man. That would be so sweet. Yeah, because uh, he it might get. He said it might get the state record. He's off air. Might get the state record a run for its money. Holy crap! Well, uh, yeah. Well, see, this is cool. I like doing this episode, which I want to, I'm going to try and do an episode soon on uh, like hunting planted pines and stuff. Cause I know we've had a, a decent amount of people ask about that, but, uh, mm-hmm. but i I think this is a cool episode because to be completely honest, like we talk so much about like beast tactics and everything, but, uh, believe me, we have looked and it's not that easy to find someone who actually has luck, like killing deer on beds, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's actually extremely hard to find someone like that. So uh, this is a fun one to record for sure, just because it's rare to find someone who's who's kind of figured it out to that level. I mean, Glenn, he he had it figured out in his own way. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't like necessarily like I don't know. He wasn't like on the hunting beast form or whatever. But I mean, he was killing deer out of beds, uh, and and so is Adam. So that's that's pretty cool for sure. Yeah, well, it's kind of like in that hunt. Like, again, if you watch, anyone watches that video, his brother, who's on the other side of the mountain on another ridge, has the deer, his deer, that he or one of the deer, not the deer, I don't think it's the deer he shot, but another one, was bedded literally under the tree he climbed. Huh. Um, which, is, I mean, it's crazy, because you're going in there, especially early season, and really, the one thing I really get out of this podcast is how he talks about hunting early season, getting super early in the morning and going hunting these areas and having success. Cause you don't hear a lot of guys talk about that. I really personally has never, I've never heard someone talk about hunting, you know, September in the States that open real early or in October and literally trying to find locate and sit right over the top of one of their beds yeah, uh, and have success doing it <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. in the Southeast and talking about the Southeast. Now, uh, you know, other guys, like I think uh, Joe from the hunting bees, he had that, he had luck doing that up in uh, Michigan for the Public Land Challenge, but again, that's not we're not you know we're not talking that region of the country. It's a little bit different down here. So, yeah, though, well, I think that was I think that Joe's buck was in like Wisconsin or something. Uh, he he did kill one in Michigan, but the one that he literally shot in its bed, I think that mm-hmm. was in Wisconsin. Oh, that was okay. Gotcha. Yeah, let so me like and, and if you and if you haven't watched that video, anybody out there, you need to go watch it. It is pretty crazy. Like literally, he does he does pretty much exactly what we talked about in this podcast. He went in there, set up over top of the bed. The buck came in before daylight, and he literally had to wait for it to get daylight. And he looks over, and the buck is laying there in the bed, and he shoots it. It's crazy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's 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 pretty cool make makes me want to try it and uh by the way talking about like getting in early and everything uh thomas nix who's a friend of mine but also a listener to the podcast 
he went in and uh, got in basically an SMZ up in two cutovers. So there's like two cutovers. SMZ runs up in between them. He went and got in there, and it's like real thick, kind of like what we've been talking about. Can't see more than like 10 yards. And he walks through the stuff in the dark, and he gets way back in there. And uh, I think he said he set up at like 4 a.m. Like he got in early, early, early. And uh, yeah, he killed a he killed a really nice buck, huge, uh, huge body deer. Uh, good rack too, but I mean his body was like real impressed, especially for a South Carolina hill country. So, congrats Thomas on that one. That's pretty sweet. Hopefully, I can do that here in like two weeks with my Georgia quota hunt. So I'm pretty excited about that. Dude, you know what? I oh my gosh, dang it, man! I forgot to ask the question <laughs> that I was actually I was thinking about the whole time. And when you asked me about concluders, I forgot about it. Dang it, dude! I had a question I was gonna ask. I was going to ask Adam about whether or not he ever, because I know he says he has a lot of areas that he hunts and you only hunt a spot like one time. But I was going to ask him if he ever goes in blind morning or afternoon. And then I would really want to hit him hard. Like, does he ever go in blind in the mornings? Does he, does he ever do that? Cause you know, we have that, we've had that conversation about like how you don't like doing that anymore. I think I'm going to quit doing pretty, it. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. So I wanted to ask him that, you know, what's his thoughts on going in blind in the morning you know, sitting where there's train feature or sitting on the edge of a thicket that you, or, you know, finding a thicket on the edge of whatever the situation is. And I was going to ask him if he's ever had any success doing that. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, personally, I, I like going in blind, even in the mornings, dude, if I just have an idea of like the train when I'm getting in, you know, I, I've had success doing that in the past. You know, I've shot, let's see, I, let me think, shot at least one buck, hold on, one buck, I'm talking like morning hunts. Mm. I've done it. I don't know, I've done it a few dozen, and I think at least one buck doing that with a bow. You see, but, well, my thing is like I have two. I've killed some deer yeah. that way, but I'm talking about over like a span of several years. I've killed like a handful doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. it works sometimes, but I, I don't know. It's like I, what happened uh, that first night that that I was in North Alabama when I sat in the spot that we all ended up hunting. That's pretty much what happened to me. Like, is the classic thing is I walk in there on some like terrain feature or what I think is gonna be a funnel or something, and I get set up. And I, I mean, when I get set up in the morning, it's like I, I want to sit until at least like eight thirty or nine, just because that's when a lot of your movement. I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of movement, at least what I see, is about that time in the morning. So I don't want to be like getting down out of the tree at like eight o'clock because I usually see deer around eight o'clock. So. It's like, and then I get down and I look over. I'm like, wow, this is a complete waste of time. Like the that first day I was there, I was telling you, there's just like a freaking wall of privet right there. And I thought I, when it got light, I looked down there. I'm like, oh, dude, there's a big old trail coming out of that. This is perfect. And then I get down and there was no trail. There was a fallen tree like blocking the trail. So, I mean, I wasted my whole morning. And when you when you're up there. And you're like on your vacation and you have like very limited time. Like, dude, it just, I was like, God, that was stupid. I should have just, I should have just waited till it got like gray light and just still hunted my way to a spot and then got up a tree. I, I would have done so much better, you know? Well, that, that brings up a topic that I'm going to start doing more and more this year. And I did in Tennessee and I feel like it can help us. I think it can help anybody anywhere is, you know, scout more than you hunt. Yeah. You know, whether or not you just take off a whole morning to like not hunt and you're just going to cover ground in the woods, you know, take your bow with you or whatever the situation is, but you're just going to, your, your whole point is cover ground, find where the deer are at, and then figure it out a place to hunt that afternoon or the next day. 
in doing that because I feel like you'd be more successful doing that, find the hot, fresh sign at that point than just bounce around for two or three days and hunt a bunch of different areas and then not getting to the right spot until the very last day. Yeah. Which I feel is like what we did up in North Alabama. I feel like we hunted more than we actually scouted. Yeah. And we didn't find the area to get into until literally the last day. Yeah, I agree with you there, which, uh, which we'll kind of wrap it up here. But, um, but one thing which men you've talked about that I'm trying to do this year is not think about hunting so much as like an action, more, more of like a process, you know, like I'm going to go out and, uh, I'm going to like participate in the actual process of like finding a deer to hunt. Cause what's the point of hunting if I don't have a deer to hunt? Uh, cause I mean, just a lot of my sits are just throwing sits at something that looks good on the map, which I love doing cause I'm a map nerd, but, uh, but there comes a point where it's just like, dude, it's just not that efficient. You know, I just got to put more boots on the ground and rather than go sit in this spot that looks good on the map, I just need to find a bunch of spots that look good on the map and walk through them until I find one that's actually worth setting up on. And, uh, yep. another thing I'm doing, or this is kind of a two part thing is like when I get to a spot, I try to f- like make myself think of three reasons to actually get up in a tree there, like three good reasons. And if I can only think of two, even if they're really good reasons, I just move on. Like I, I don't argue with myself about it. I'm like, I eh, can't find a third one. Let's go. And then, uh, and then also like walking in and hunting and everything. One thing I've had to do is just tell myself like, slow down. You do not have to get in a tree tonight. I'm like, dude, you don't have to set up. You don't have to get in a tree. You don't have to do anything. And that's what I did that uh, that night. I killed the doe. I mean, like I said, I shot her at like five twelve in the evening, and I'd been set up for about. 10 minutes. <laughs> so, I mean, I spent a lot of time getting up there and accessing and I wasn't finding good stuff until the very end. And I was just like, I was getting antsy and I was wanting to set up. I was like, dude, just slow down. Just keep looking. It's perfectly fine. If you don't even get in a tree, it's perfectly fine. If you don't even hunt tonight, just get up here and see what it looks like. And maybe you'll find something for tomorrow. And it just so happened that you know, after pushing just a little bit more, I found the good stuff, got set up, and had success in 10 minutes. Yeah, and that's definitely probably a smarter way to go about doing it. You know, having the mindset that I do not have to get set up right now. Because there's times like that when I'm thinking, especially like in a morning hunt, dude, where I'm going in blind, especially like going in blind, which, you know, I, I, I do a, a ton. I've done that a lot in the last six years or so. And again, I don't have anything against it. You know, there's times where it's frustrating, but there's also times I do it. I'm like, holy crap, this is unreal just because of the areas I'll, I'll, you know, I'll find my way into. Mm-hmm. But definitely having the patience and having really the self-restraint that telling yourself, like you said, you, you don't have to get up right now. Like if you, you can sit on the ground, you can hunt on the ground. No, not a big deal. Like relax. You know, you don't have to kill a deer from a tree. I think that's pushing everybody's mind too much. Man, what's Bridger doing? Boy. He's over shaking off. He's wanting to get in bed. Man, you need to get him a headset. We'll get him on here and do a little <laughs> interview. There you go. But, uh, but really, you don't have to have the mindset that you always have to be in a tree. Like, dude, I love hunting from the ground, and I feel like it takes a certain mindset to be confident in doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, but, again, you don't have to limit yourself to a tree. And like we saw this weekend, dude, or this maybe this past weekend where we were finding the deer were in areas that you were struggling to find a tree. And if you came in there with that mindset, especially like with a climber or even a lock on, um, 
you know, you'd be very stressed out, you know, tr- looking up in a tree, trying to find the tree, get it, and then you'd be sitting there and the deer, you know, you might see deer, but they're 120 yards from you. Yeah. So. Yeah, which I'm definitely very eager to take the lessons we learned up there and apply them in other places because, I mean, up there, there's some agriculture and everything. Like, you got bean fields and all that, and I feel like when you're hunting cropland like that, everything is just like, you know, I hate to dog on, like, the guys that hunt that stuff a lot, but everything's just kind of exaggerated, like you know what I'm saying? Uh, everything, it, I feel like it's easier to pick up on patterns because it's, oh, yeah. it's easier to see the deer. It's literally easier mm. to see them because there's less cover. Uh, or there's more yep. open fields, so you can actually lay eyes on them more and actually observe what they're doing. So it's kind of like it's kind of like you're pulling the curtain back a little bit. And like this is such a good example because I'm parked right up next to the main highway where everyone pulls in, and you know I see people you know flying back to their other spots, and I'm sitting up there you know at the overlooked spot where there's hardly any trees to get in. And you can just watch these deer, you know, funnel back towards the swamp, just kind of leaving the, the hardwood flats where all these other guys are hunting. Kind of your typical mm-hmm. stuff where you could go and walk and you could find like a hot feed tree. When in reality, like the, the bucks, you know, outside of opening weekend, you know, the bucks are right on them. Like we talked to some guys who uh, who sounded like they had some luck on some feed trees in there opening weekend. But then now, I mean, if we're hunting the same bucks, man, they're like 300 yards out of the game. If you're trying to kill one mm-hmm. of the bucks living in that swamp, you know. Yep, exactly. So, anyways, uh, I'm trying to think. Do we got anything else going on? We're going. I guess we're going back up there this weekend, which you know we're actually recording this on a what is it Wednesday night? So, yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, we'll be hunting this weekend. Try to see what that plays out. We've got a huge cold front pushing through, which is extremely exciting. Maybe it puts all those snakes away. Uh, we we get way too close to too. Yeah, many snakes. I could I could do with a few less snakes than last time. Yeah, Andrew had he was the only one with snake boots on, and he was more petrified than I was about the snakes. I'm I'm 95 percent sure I stepped on one of them that last. I think you, I think I think you stepped on two. I think you stepped on the first water moccasin because that sucker you stepped and took a step away and it slithered out from right where you just were, dude. I mean, on the trail. Yeah, uh, and it was the big one. Yeah, that one was. But he could have hit me above my boot easy, and we'd have been in trouble because we were back in there. But uh. I don't know, dude. Those are some pretty chill water moccasins. They didn't. Uh, they didn't want to have any trouble. I definitely stepped on that last one. Like, there's. I, after looking back, I'm like, there's no way I didn't step on that thing. <laughs> and he just, he yeah. just laid there and was like, oh hey, I'm gonna leave now and just kind of slithered up under that log. Dude, that black racer was hilarious though. Because I'm like, I, what, what did I do to you? I was like, oh look at that snake or like, I, what did, what did I do? I did something. You're like, oh like that snake. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> so you, you said something about a snake biting me, and I was like. Like this one, and there's one right in front of me. And, and then, I was like, "No freaking way!" And then, and and then we walked up, and like, right "Is that is that a black racer?" And we're like, "I think so." But then it did something, and we're like, "What did it do?" It did, it did something. It, oh, it, it flared, flared its head out. It, yeah, it flared its yeah. head out. And I was like, "Wait, is and that?" You're like, one? "Oh, that looks venomous." You're like, "Oh, that looks venomous." I'm like, "No, nah, dude, he's, he's just he's just acting like he's hot stuff." Yeah, and then I'm like, I poked him with a stick, and then he took off. I was like, "Oh, yep, it's a black racer." <laughs> yep. <laughs> we yep, pulled out of there exactly. going 90 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, we're going to go up there and kill a buck, hopefully. Um, but, yeah, that's about all I got. Like I said, uh, everyone write in on the kind of areas that you, that you want to hear us, you know, try and find a guy to talk about. Um, we've been hitting this oh, mountain. Oh, oh. Huh? I got, a guy, I got a really good guy from South Carolina we're going to have on. Oh, that's sweet. like low, low, low land South Carolina, so that's going to be cool. So anyone – 
from that part of the country, don't, you don't have to ride in or get somebody coming off for that. <laughs> so anybody else? Because we've been giving the mountain hunters some love lately. Uh, the swamp guys have been got, getting some love. I, I'm more of like a like a planted pine, you know, a hardwood SMZ type hunter, like that central Alabama, just classic, you know, timber country kind of stuff. That's where I come from, and that's what I'm really interested in. So we're definitely trying to find someone for there. Uh, but if, if anyone else from any other biome in the South wants to hear something, definitely write in, and, uh, I mean, we'll listen to you. Pretty much everything we do is based off, like, uh, listener requests. So shoot us a message, and we'll do our best. Yeah, also we're having a ton of, um, as everyone's seen, we've had a ton of listener success stories of guys implementing tactics from the podcast, from the, from the, uh, the guests, and actually having success doing so on public land. So if you're one of those listeners that you've been implementing these tactics and, and have had success so far this season, message us on Facebook or Instagram. Let us know that that's happened. Send us some photos and we'll share that because it's awesome to kind of see that you know, the guests that we've been bringing on is really helping you all, you know, have more confidence when you're in the woods and really helping you feel the freezer and also maybe yeah. get you, a, you know, a couple of good racks on the wall. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, God, it, it makes it all worth it. How many hours do you think that we've spent doing this? I, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> it's a lot. Collective it's thousands a lot. of hours, probably. Well, not even that. You got to think of how many hours we, we've gone trying to find some of these guys and then also trying to vet them out. As people don't understand, it's not like we just like find somebody and then throw the podcast on. There's, uh, I, I now come to realize I try to vet every everybody. Where I get them on the phone and talk to them for at least probably forty five minutes to an hour yep. and kind of make sure that they're a good fit for what we're trying to do. Yeah, and uh, that that takes a lot of time. Yeah, it does. Um, it, it does. It, and also takes time convincing some people to get on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> That's true. And some and, of the some of the most dude, interesting folks will not come on. <laughs> dude, listen, I'm trying. There's a guy from Arkansas I'm trying to get on. That it, I'm, there's a guy from Arkansas I'm trying to get on. And there's at least two guys from Mississippi that I've been trying to get on for a while, and they're they're still on the edge. And guys, listen, if I can get one of these guys on from Mississippi, it will be ridiculous. But <laughs> I don't know. He he might not want to talk, and I don't blame him because he's killed some giants. Um, yeah, some yeah. Pe- some people, man, some people just they don't want to. And I mean, some that's the, their so, thing. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. Some of the best deer, public land deer killers, just won't talk. And most of the, most of them you won't even know about, especially some of the older guys. Uh, you got you got to find them from especially somebody the, else. Especially the older guys, for sure. Especially the older yeah. guys. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so uh, wait, there was one other thing. Dang it. What was I going to say? Yeah, it's all about all right. listener requests. Though. I mean, actually, Devin Duncan, uh, that was mm-hmm. a listener request. Someone actually messaged us like way back in August about him. And uh, we, yep. we had just done some swamp stuff, and, I, and we were talking. We are like, man, we really need to do some mountain stuff. And I went back through our messages and found uh, whoever referred him. And uh, we reached out to him and made that happen. So, like, if you have a person in mind, of if you could get us in contact with them, that'd be phenomenal. I mean, that's how we've gotten a lot of these guys so far. So, so if you got like an uncle or something who's just a stone cold killer, send them our way. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of those guys take a lot of convincing, and I understand that because kind of like Devin's dad, I'd love to have Devin's dad on because he seems like an absolute animal when it comes to like killing big deer in the mountains. Oh yeah, but as as Devin said, he's not the kind of guy that would get on a podcast, yeah. which is unfortunate. Anyways, it is what it is. We're excited. Uh, we're, we're excited. The podcast is helping a lot of you all out. Uh, to be honest, there's times, and it's happened twice this year, where I, I've had listeners, you know, tell us about you know different things they've had you know happen to them this year 
which because of the podcast area would kill big deer. And I'm like, Dad, I need to listen to the podcast and actually take to heart what we're talking about. <laughs> but because of these guests, I was laughing with someone the other dude, day, dude. We've had how many? Li- we've had so many listeners write in with like big buck stories. Like, oh. I killed this, especially like like Shane. Um, yeah, Shane Turpin, who we sold a hat to yeah. and everything. He's one of the first guys yeah. to get one of our hats, and he killed a nice buck on one of the same places I hunt in Georgia. And I was just like, dude, like I, I'm not having these. I'm not having that kind of luck, and I record these things every week. <laughs> well, dude, not not just that, but there was a I think his name's Dakota. God, I can't Dakota Bishop, I believe from Kentucky. He went in blind on an area that he he knew was stick on the map. He'd never been there before. Went in blind on an archery hunt. And he killed a hell of a deer, and I'm like, "Dad, gum it, dude!" I'm like, "I need to start doing some of this." I stuff. know. I need to. I need, I need to, to listen. Back I need listen. to listen. To, well, I just need to listen to the listeners. All right, all right, guys, listen. What tactics were really helping you all out that we can kind of start working on? Because it's bad. Like you know, everybody thinks that. Oh yeah, we talked to all these guys, so you know, we're implementing all these tactics. To be honest, when you talk to all these guys, you know, a lot of times. You know, we take notes, but we're just thinking like, okay, yeah, we're trying to produce something for you all. And it's like now I feel like I need to become more of like a listener and really listen even more in detail what these guys are saying and actually go out there and implement it. Especially like, uh, who was it? Dang it, there was another guy. Um, crap, I cannot remember who it was, but somebody we had on the podcast, uh, or as in a listener success story, um, he's found a feed tree that was in the middle. Oh, it was... um. Uh, uh, Brady. Brady was talking about there was oh, yeah. uh, who's a, a friend of the podcast and also a listener of the podcast from Birmingham. Found a found a feed tree in the middle of like a bedding thicket and went in there, sat there, and, and sh- shot a big deer. And unfortunately, wasn't able to recover it. But I'm like, dude, that's what I, I need to get out there and just go find that man. I just gotta go do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny because I realized like so so with this, with this gig that me and Jacob got going on I'm, I'm the one that does like the editing and like post-production and everything of these podcasts and I'll go in and I'll be like creating the episode in our like hosting service so like when you publish it it goes out to like iHeartRadio and Stitcher and iTunes and blah 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 and all that and I'll be doing the description and everything and I'm just like what the heck did we talk about? <laughs> like, I can't remember because we, we do this so much and like recording it and like, you're thinking about what, what you're going to name it. You're thinking about like uploading it and editing it and all that kind of stuff. Like dude, some things just get lost. And I remember like re-listening to like Glenn and Adrian's and I'm like, Oh my God, I do not remember talking about that. <laughs> so, oh yeah, dude. So I gotta, I gotta do better. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta do better for sure. And another thing is like, I'd be interested to hear from some listeners on uh, combining tactics from from past guests because um, I think me and you, but also me and Michael, have talked about this kind of thing before where like you might take uh, two or three of these guys and try and combine their tactics. Now, do you think that would be more effective or less effective than just picking one and going with it? Because everyone we've talked to is just a little bit different. Some of them are real similar. Some of them do certain things exactly the same, but they're all different. Is it better to like take one of their philosophies and just like adopt it or try and piece two or three of them together? I'd be curious to hear if someone's like taken two or three of these guys' tactics and kind of made a conglomerate and went out and had success with it. Uh, uh, I, I say feel like yes. You, you feel like that would be effective? Yes, I feel like number one – Find a thick cover. Find the absolute thickest stuff you can find that the deer are very comfortable in, whether it's overlook spots right next to the road or where, like uh, like um, Adam said, whether it's you know an hour hike to it. Find those areas and then find the feed tree 
inside those areas. I feel like right now that would be like in my personal experience, especially like the, the oak crop that we're having here and that I've been seeing throughout the Southeast. I feel like that would be a really, really good way to start right now. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to rut, dude, I mean, especially like what, uh, what Devin had talked about kind of hunting the mountains and also with um, Adam mentioned, you know, finding these areas, these little uh, travel corridors, these terrain features in between two bedding thickets and, and then hunting that, whether, you know, you have a, you know, you know, a bunch of scrapes in that area or what, but hunting an area where it's a, a high odds spot that you're going to have deer working it is going to be, I think it's just going to play out uh, to really uh, help someone be successful. But dude, that's why I'm a, I'm so pumped for this, this year to hunt the rut in uh, the States that we're going to be in, especially Alabama. Oh my gosh, dude, I'm ready to start throwing these tactics out there. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I'm excited too. So uh, I guess, I guess we'll wrap that one up here unless you got anything else. Uh, no, uh, I, I realize, especially after like having guys like Adam on and Devin, I uh, absolutely ramble and it's bad, but, uh, it's cause I'm excited guys. So if you ever hear me, you start rambling, it's because I'm freaking pumped. If I'm not rambling, it's because I'm not fired up. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. I've known you for years. That's always been true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyways, everyone go out and, uh, kill a big buck and then send it to us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Tag us. Awesome. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no-brainer. You gotta be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.